Hey everybody, Germany just won the World Cup. Yippee-i-o. Uh, I don't know how to say congratulations in German, but if I did, I would say it to all you German fans out there right now. I, uh, I actually do speak a little German, strangely enough, um, only because there was a very sexy girl named Judy Gumpf in my, uh, let's see, what was that, sixth grade? I think it was sixth grade, yeah, or maybe it was seventh grade. I think in the summer after sixth grade, um, I was about to start studying uh, Spanish the following year. We were offered Spanish, German, and French, and along with probably 60% of the other kids um, who were, you know, who qualified to do these language classes in, in school, I picked Spanish because I heard it was the easiest. And also, you know, I was following the herd. Why not? Was, but mainly because it was the easiest. And uh, then over the summer, this girl, Judy Gumpf, informed me that uh, she was uh, signed up to do German, but there were only eight students so I th- or nine. I think they needed ten or whatever it was. They were one short, and so they might not be able to do the class. So uh, I thought this was my shot with Judy. So I called the school during the summer and switched to German. So the German class was saved. I was very briefly a hero. Uh, And then I quickly learned that German is fucking impossible, at least for me. I have very little talent for for foreign language. I lived in Spain 20-some years. I still barely speak Spanish. I I speak Spanish, but there's no question I'm a foreigner, right? I'm not one of those guys with the perfect accent and the perfect grammar, far from it. Um, So anyway, so I I did German for a while uh, because I thought that would give me a shot with Judy Gumpf. But Judy Gumpf was one of these, you know, one of these 14-year-olds who was going out with a 22-year-old dude with a Camaro. So, and I was a, you know, pimply-faced 14-year-old with braces. So, Looking back on it now, I see I had absolutely zero possibility of ever getting anywhere near Judy Gumpf, um, at least anywhere nearer than sitting behind her in German class. But I I logged three years in that fucking class and with Herr, Herr Flint. And uh, Herr Flint and I worked out some sort of a weird agreement because I was also on the soccer team. And uh, I sucked at soccer as bad as I sucked at German. But uh, he convinced me to stick them both out. And now I realize the reason he wanted me to stick them out is that he probably would have lost his job (laughs) if I had quit. You know, he needed me on the team so he could make a little extra money as the soccer coach. And uh, yeah, if I weren't in the class, he would have lost that class too, I suppose. So as bad as I did, there did seem to be a bottom on how low he would grade me. I don't think I ever got lower than a C in the class because he didn't want to lose me. So my sense of it was as long as I went to German uh, class and I went to soccer, then he would keep passing me. So I did. The weird thing was that since I was the only kid from the German class who was also on the soccer team, you could always tell when he was screaming at me because he screamed in German. I think he must have thought that was like, you know, he was giving me some some extra German tutoring by calling me a Dummkopf and, uh, you know, mach schnell, mach schnell. Um, 
But what it did to me was scar me deeply, I'm telling you. I'm still suffering from the PTSD because of this. No, I'm not. I, I think I've recovered. Um, but it, it does mark my, my uh, it informed me deeply about two things, or maybe three things. German, the German language, any language that has like an accusative and a dative case, I don't know what the fuck that is. I mean, foreign languages are hard enough with the, the feminine and the masculine, like in Spanish. Every, every object is either masculine or feminine. If you don't speak any foreign languages, you don't know what I'm talking about. But trust me, it's a mind fuck. I mean... A fucking table, la mesa. It's feminine. How how is a table feminine? You know, and and la silla, the chair, is also feminine. But uh, you know, el whatever is masculine. I can't think of an example. Half the words in the Spanish language, I can't think of an example. Uh, and then there are all these weird like exceptions, like el sistema. Even though it ends in an a, it's still masculine. Where most words that end in a, most nouns that end in a, are feminine. You know, or el problema, o la moto, o la mano. It's like what? I'm completely confused with this stuff. Anyway, in German, you not only have the masculine and the feminine, you also have the neutral. So there are three different classes of objects. Some are male, some are female, and some are neither. And then you get weird shit like uh, das Mädchen, which means which is the the girl, which is neutral. Like how is a girl not feminine? You know, it's it's just fucking confusing as hell. Anyway, so I learned about German. I learned about soccer that I suck at both. And I learned about the futility of uh, swinging at pitches you can't even see <laughs> when it comes to women. So I, I learned what it meant to, uh, you know, to, to be way, way out of my league. Uh, hey, Judy Gumpf, I hope you're listening to this or, or your husband is or your, your kids are. Or God, maybe even your grandkids by this point. Uh, if anyone out there knows a, a woman from Western Pennsylvania named Judy Gumpf, give her my regards. Tell her I remember her fondly. While we're talking about international affairs, um, I've mentioned uh, that I switched over to a new podcast hosting service. Well, more on that in a moment. But one of the cool things about the service is they've got their uh, their stats very uh, um, finely tuned. So you can really see a lot about who's listening to the podcast, where they are. Uh, about 70% of the people listening to this podcast right now are in the U.S., uh, but uh, Canada is coming on strong. Almost 10% of the people who listen to the podcast are in Canada. Then we've got Australia, the UK, and then interestingly, Sweden and Norway. Thousands of people in Sweden and Norway. And then New Zealand, Finland, and Ireland uh, bringing up the rest. But yeah, they've also got this, you can sort of um, hover over different countries on this world map. And they're like, I mean, Myanmar, 224 downloads. So I don't know if that's, I mean, there aren't that many podcast episodes up yet. So that's at least four or five people. Um, it can't just be one person downloading all of them. So there are people in Myanmar listening to this podcast. Thailand, 522. Saudi Arabia, 43. Nigeria, 51. Very cool. If you're listening to me in Nigeria right now, uh, good on you, mate. Uh, Indonesia, 116. North Korea, zero. Hey, North Korea, what the hell? Come on. Uh, n nobody in Mongolia. Wait, Mongolia, four. 
Holy cow, you're in Kazakhstan, zero. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's very cool. So if you're out there in the world somewhere listening to this, uh, very cool, very nice to, to have you out there and, and to, to imagine all those people and all these bizarre situations who are hearing my voice and I'm just sitting here in a room by myself. What a world. Now, about that new uh, podcast hosting service, if you go to tangentiallyspeaking.com, that'll uh, redirect you directly to the, the Libsyn page, which is the sort of home base page for the podcast. I also put them up on chrisryanphd.com, so if you've been listening to them there, you can keep doing that. But if you go to uh, tangentiallyspeaking.com, you'll see there's a thing there saying get premium access. Now, what that is... Um, is this hosting service sets things up so that the most recent 20 episodes remain free just like they they always have been. So if you're sort of rolling along uh, more or less uh, current with the podcast, nothing changes for you. But if you want to go back further than 20 episodes, you want to go back to some of the earlier episodes, um, then you have to get the premium membership or whatever then. Uh, and that unlocks them. If there are only a couple, you can get like a three-month thing for a few bucks. Uh, I think it's $19.99 for a year. Anyone who uh, sent me money for the Talking Out My Ass episodes, you are pre-enrolled. So all you need to do is use the email that you used when you sent me that 20 bucks. Go to that page, click on the Get Free, and then where it says... Um, uh, log in, just log in, and your so that your your email address is your um, username, and your password is change me. I sent emails to everybody, but if you didn't get one, or it's in your spam folder or whatever, um, that's all you need to do. Also, if you sent me any sort of donation, if you sent me a dollar, two dollars, whatever it was, uh, in that first year, or so I enrolled you automatically as well. So you're covered for a year. Um, and then, uh, you know, then you're, <laughs> then you're on your own. Um, but anyway, so that, that explains that the talking out my ass episodes, some people have sent me money for them and then they're saying, well, how come these are free? I sent you money. That's why. Oh, thunder. Um, because, uh, because I didn't, I didn't want anyone who had sent money to try to listen to it and say, what the hell it's behind a wall now. So everyone who sent me money or a donation or anything should be pre-enrolled in that. Just use your email and change me as the password. Uh, and obviously you can change the password. Um, so that takes care of that, hopefully. So upcoming episodes of Talking Out My Ass will automatically be considered bonus material. If you don't have that premium access, you won't be able to hear those. Let's do some business. This episode is brought to you by Ride Scout. Ride Scout is a free mobile app that aggregates all the ground transportation options, providing point-to-point -point directions, plus cost and arrival times, which allows you to find, compare, and book rides on demand. So if you live in a major city in the U.S., check this out, Ride Scout. Uh, they've got uh, a link set up, which is at uh, bit.ly slash tangent ride. That's B-I-T period L-Y slash backslash uh, tangent, T-A-N-G-E-N-T-R-I-D-E. -E. If you go to that, uh, that uh, link, you will be able to download the podcast. Uh, 
and they're giving us what a buck for every listener who tries out their app so there you go it's a free app you can download it check it out and uh and they'll toss a buck our way uh, let me know if you like it it, it sounds like a, a very cool uh thing if you use uber you use various you know taxi bus whatever and you're never like oh i don't know what i should do i'm only going here or there sounds like a pretty cool thing you just enter in where you're going and and it'll give you your options again that's bit.ly slash tangent ride we're also brought to you by my package that's m-y-p-a-k-a-g-e not c-k which is the correct spelling anyway mypackage.com brings you the best and most comfortable underwear experience for men stay cool and dry this summer with their patented comfort technology oh yeah uh, very cool underwear. I a t- true story. I've got this buddy in Amsterdam, Martin, who uh, when I was living in Spain, he and I hung out all the time. And I used to fly back to the U.S. a lot to see family or whatever. And every time he would ask me to bring him back some Calvin Klein underwear because they're like three times the price in Europe the, as they are in the U.S. So I would come over and and stock up on Calvin Klein underwear for him and bring it back. Anyway, I was in in Holland recently um, after my package started sponsoring the podcast. They'd sent me some underwear, and most of what they sent me were large. I was wasn't sure if I was a medium or a large, but they ended up sending me a whole bunch of large, which are a little bit too big for me. So anyway, I took some of this underwear over, knowing that Martin is a uh, a connoisseur of underwear, and gave him a couple pairs. And then a couple weeks ago, I get an email from him saying, Chris, I tried to order more of that underwear online, but they don't ship to Holland. Can you get me some of that stuff and then ship it? Or, I mean, you know, I'm happy to pay you extra whatever. So if my package has the Martin van Dijk seal of approval. Uh, and that guy pays a lot of a lot of attention to his underwear. Anyway, it's really it's really good underwear. I highly recommend it. It's a little pricey, so if you're uh, you know a starving student type, you might want to file this for later. But if you've got some some cash and enjoy the finer things in life, uh, a couple pairs of this underwear might just be the ticket. Um, so check them out, mypackage.com. If you enter sex at checkout, you get a chance to uh, to get an extra pair for yourself or someone you love. And, you know, that's a you know, $40, $50 value, uh, depending what, uh, what style you're going for. So check them out, mypackage.com. And, of course, we're always happy to be sponsored by Audible. Audible uh, gives you a 30-day free trial and a free audiobook, which you can keep, by the way. Okay, they're not asking for the audiobook back. So even if you don't get around to listening to the whole thing in the first 30 days, whatever, it doesn't matter. You've got the file. You can keep it. You can listen to it whenever you want. Um, in the conversation you're about to hear in this podcast with uh, Peter Bogosian, who's a um, uh, an atheist, a, a, a philosopher, um, a professor, and he's written a book called A Manual for Creating Atheists, which is sort of um, a book about how to speak to people of faith in a way that will encourage them to, um, to, to bring some critical thinking to their faith um anyway uh i think that's a, it's it's a very interesting conversation but one of the the parallels that i keep thinking of is is the parallel between faith religious faith and the sort of blind love 
that so many people report feeling. And, you know, we call it falling in love. There's this sense of helplessness and of um, something larger than rationality or, or at least something that, uh, that seems to cancel out rationality in some ways. And uh, personally, I'm not convinced that that is real. It's the experience is real, but I think by calling it love, we endow it with power to um, to affect our lives in in ways that it doesn't deserve. Because what it is is a short term delusion. It's no more real than. Um, you know, the anger of a woman uh, suffering from premenstrual disorder is justified. I mean, it's real anger, but then later, a week later, she'll look back and say, Geez, what was I thinking, right? There, there was no reason to be like that. Or, you know, any one of us, we don't need to be uh, women suffering from PMS. Certainly, uh, men go through all sorts of delusions as well, right? You, your your team loses, and you're so freaked out. And actually, there are measurable hormonal changes. Your testosterone levels drop. All sorts of things happen. So your experience of despair and sadness and all that stuff that you feel when you're you know, all those Argentinians are feeling right now as I speak these words, those are real feelings, but ultimately who gives a shit right unless you're you know married to one of the players what's it really matter to you um it doesn't it doesn't matter at all in any concrete tangible sense and yet the experience is real so i think that's something that uh that this experience of love has as well it's and, and again i'm I don't like even using the word love because it's so unclear what we mean. You know, love for your child, love for the Beatles, love for your wife, love for your mistress, you know, love for um, curry. I mean, these are all the same word and they all mean so many different things. Um, But in any case, I thought an interesting example, a sample to use for today's podcast from Audible is from The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which is one of my favorite books ever. Um, on uh, When I get to it and on the Talking Out My Ass episodes, I'll explain how the book actually changed my life in a very concrete way, um, just because a guy happened to be reading it and I struck up a conversation because it was my favorite novel. And next thing you know, um, I spent the next uh, several years um, working for this guy. So very, very interesting, like concrete effect on my life. But the reason I love the book so much is that it's such um, an examination of the different forms of, of this thing we call love, this experience we call love, ranging from intense sexual attraction to um, uh, uh, a, a need to protect and um, nurture another person right which we would see as parental love but it plays out very often in romantic love as well I and mean, what woman doesn't sometimes meet a man that she says oh i could change him i could help him i could i could make him better i could make him stronger right this is a mother that's a mother talking 
Um, and what man doesn't feel, mm, I could help that woman, I could protect her, I could um, make a safe place for her where she would feel free and open and her sexuality could blossom and I would be the bee who would be buzzing in that blossoming sexuality. I mean, these are all very um, common feelings. And, you know, what do we call each other? Baby. How, what the fuck is that? Why are we calling people we fuck baby? That's a, a pretty strange thing. So what I'm saying is that we all these different types of love and different um, manifestations of love intermingle uh, and and confuse us, and we fail to to distinguish between you know the fact that. Um, I may be in a point in my life where I feel a need to protect someone and nurture someone. And then this person shows up who fits the, those parameters, and then I project all this stuff on her. And I say, look, oh, she's the one. She's, she, she creates these things. She doesn't create them. She's just, she doesn't create them any more than the moon creates the light. You know, it's a reflection. It's a reflection of something that's being generated by us and by the circumstances of our psychological condition at that particular moment. Anyway, here's a sample of The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera, which I think uh, does a very good job of explaining the sorts of things I'm talking about. I have been thinking about Tomas for many years, but only in the light of these reflections did I see him clearly. I saw him standing at the window of his flat and looking across the courtyard at the opposite walls, not knowing what to do. He had first met Teresa about three weeks earlier in a small Czech town. They had spent scarcely an hour together. She had accompanied him to the station and waited with him until he boarded the train. Ten days later, she paid him a visit. They made love the day she arrived. That night, she came down with a fever and stayed a whole week in his flat with the flu. He had come to feel an inexplicable love for this all-but-complete stranger. She seemed a child to him, a child someone had put in a bulrush basket daubed with pitch and sent downstream for Tomas to fetch at the riverbank of his bed. She stayed with him a week, until she was well again, then went back to her town some hundred and twenty-five miles from Prague. And then came the time I have just spoken of, and see as the key to his life. Standing by the window, he looked out over the courtyard at the walls opposite him and deliberated. Should he call her back to Prague for good? He feared the responsibility. If he invited her to come, then come she would and offer him up her life. Or should he refrain from approaching her? Then she would remain a waitress in a hotel restaurant of a provincial town, and he would never see her again. Did he want her to come, or did he not? He looked out over the courtyard at the opposite walls, seeking an answer. He kept recalling her lying on his bed. She reminded him of no one in his former life. She was neither mistress nor wife. She was a child, whom he had taken from a bulrush basket that had been daubed with pitch and sent to the riverbank of his bed. She fell asleep. He knelt down next to her. 
Her feverish breath quickened and she gave out a weak moan. He pressed his face to hers and whispered calming words into her sleep. After a while, he felt her breath return to normal and her face rise unconsciously to meet his. He smelled the delicate aroma of her fever and breathed it in, as if trying to glut himself with the intimacy of her body. And all at once he fancied she had been with him for many years and was dying. He had a sudden clear feeling that he would not survive her death. He would lie down beside her and want to die with her. He pressed his face into the pillow beside her head and kept it there for a long time. Now he was standing at the window trying to call that moment to account. What could it have been if not love declaring itself to him? But was it love? The feeling of wanting to die beside her was clearly exaggerated. He had seen her only once before in his life. Was it simply the hysteria of a man who, aware deep down of his inaptitude for love, felt the self-deluding need to simulate it? His unconscious was so cowardly that the best partner it could choose for its little comedy was this miserable provincial waitress with practically no chance at all to enter his life. Looking out over the courtyard at the dirty walls, he realized he had no idea whether it was hysteria or love. And he was distressed that in a situation where a real man would instantly have known how to act, he was vacillating and therefore depriving the most beautiful moments he had ever experienced, kneeling at her bed and thinking he would not survive her death, of their meaning. He remained annoyed with himself, until he realized that not knowing what he wanted was actually quite natural. We can never know what to want, because living only one life, we can neither compare it with our previous lives, nor perfect it in our lives to come. Was it better to be with Teresa or to remain alone? There is no means of testing which decision is better because there is no basis for comparison. We live everything as it comes, without warning, like an actor going on cold. And what can life be worth if the first rehearsal for life is life itself? That is why life is always like a sketch. No, Sketch is not quite the word, because a sketch is an outline of something, the groundwork for a picture, whereas the sketch that is our life is a sketch for nothing, an outline with no picture. Einmal ist keinmal, says Thomas to himself. What happens but once, says the German adage, might as well not have happened at all. If we have only one life to live... We might as well not have lived at all. Maybe that gives you a sense of why I love that book so much. I think I read it five times in my in my twenties. Um, I, I, I found it to be full of guidance, um, not guidance in the sense that it was giving me any answers, but it was certainly helping me put together questions in ways that uh, that was more helpful, I think. I, I mean, that, that whole discussion of, you know, am I faking love? Is this love or am I faking it? Or am I, is this a delusion, you know? Look at the way that's framed. Is this real love or is this a delusion? Well, 
I think that what people refer to as real love is a delusion. So it's not an either or. It's just a question of whether you're self-aware enough to, com- to, to not have the capacity to let go enough to be completely immersed in the delusion. Does that make sense? I think, for example... I, I think that there should be special driver's licenses that, you know how it says, like on my driver's license, it says I'm an organ donor. I think there should also be something on my driver's license that says, you know, give this guy a break. He drives perfectly fine when he's had five or six beers or uh, smoked a bunch of weed or uh, a couple of hits of acid. I've proven over my lifetime that uh, I'm, I've always been the go-to guy, right? When in altered states of consciousness, the phone rings, somebody's parents knock on the door, it's always been, oh, get Chris to deal with it. Because I don't, I don't ever forget that, um, I don't forget where I am and what's happening. So I think a lot of people, when they enter an enter an altered state of consciousness they're completely immersed in it and they they forget where they are who they are so they're like you know some 16 year old gets buzzed and like whoa let's run the red light wow like i've never been like that i've never experienced that because there's always been a part of me like dude you know you're a 16 year old who's drunk don't fucking red run red lights don't do something crazy so i've done crazy shit but i've always been aware that i was doing it so i haven't done it in that like total abandoned sort of way that people i think which is why a lot of people seek altered states of consciousness because they completely forget for better or worse i've never been able to do that And, uh, yeah, the worst is that probably, you know, since Judy Gumpf, I haven't ever felt 100% at sea in, in that sort of emotional sense. And even with Judy Gumpf, and even at the time, I was aware I'm a really horny 14 year old, you know, that's what's going on. And she's a sexy girl. And, you know, that's what I'm feeling. And it's hormonal, it's chemical, it's electrical, it's, you know, completely natural. But to call it love is fucking silly. And yet, from an experiential point, uh, that's probably the deepest love I've ever felt and ever will feel, sadly. I think another example of that is when people have children then they feel something even more intense um, because it's not desire it's a different kind of love but it must be incredible and it's something i'll never feel in this life but um but in a way i envy people who do but you know it always cuts two ways right because you can't love someone that much without simultaneously being terribly afraid for them Uh, And that's why the book's called The Unbearable Lightness of Being, because the whole book is about um, explaining and, and not even explaining so much, but showing how everything is also its opposite. It's the yin and the yang. It's the in and the out. It's the salty and the sweet, that every freedom is brings with it a sense of loneliness and emptiness and and disconnection because that is the essence of freedom. And yet every 
connection, every love, every thing that bonds us to another person also brings with it a feeling of being trapped and limited and, um, you know, who or what looks good in comparison to infinite possibility. Nobody. And this is one of the things about getting older that I'm noticing just in the last few years, this change of perspective where when I was younger, I would I would travel to a country and there was a part of me or, or I'd meet a, a woman or even just see a woman walking down the street or whatever. And there was always a part of me that was like, maybe that's what my life will be like. Maybe I'll spend the rest of my life in Nepal. Maybe I'll marry a Dutch woman and I'll, I'll live my life in Holland. Maybe that's what my life will be like, right? But you get to a certain age, and with me, it's around 50 when it started hitting, where it's like, oh, no, this is what my life will, be, will have been like. This is it. This is, I'm living it. There's no life ahead of me that I can sort of project onto and wonder what it's going to be like. It's not going to be, I'm not going to marry a Dutch woman. I'm not going to live my life in Nepal. Uh, I married the woman I'm going to marry, and she ain't Dutch. Um, and wherever I end up living, it you know, sort of seems like it's not going to be one place, but um, doesn't look like it's going to be Holland either. My point is, that the book, The Unbearable Lightness of Being, is a beautiful explanation of how every sword is double-edged and every heaviness brings with it a lightness and every lightness brings with it a heaviness. Anyway, check it out. And if you want to get the audiobook, go to, uh, let me see, where is it? audibletrial.com slash dawn audibletrial.com slash sex at dawn. Get your free audiobook. Maybe it's The Unbearable Lightness of Being by Milan Kundera. Maybe it's Sex at Dawn by yours truly and his non-Dutch wife. Uh, but whatever it is, you get to keep the free audiobook, uh, even if you decide not to continue with uh, the 30-day, beyond the 30-day trial. And uh, let me know. Let me know what you download. Let me know what you think. I'm always happy to hear from you. All right, this episode is interesting uh, in several ways, not just for the the guest and the the material, but several new things have happened. One is uh, Andrew Gurevich, who has been a guest on the podcast a couple of times, uh, sort of uh, co-hosted with me, which is fun. I've never done that before, but that was it was cool to have Andrew there. Um, and he I asked him to to join me because he's. Um, very knowledgeable about religion and uh, and is able to to take the conversation to places that wouldn't occur to me. And um, since we're interviewing a religious, not I, I guess Peter's not a religious scholar, but he certainly writes about religion from an atheistic point of view and philosophical point of view. So that was very interesting. And then the other thing that was uh, we recorded outside again at the Hedge House, the the beer place uh, near where I live in Portland. And um, so you might hear some noise and, you know, that kind of thing. It's like a live. Re- it, it Is there such a thing as a live recording? I, I've never understood that. Recorded live. Like, what the hell does that mean? It, anyway, it's um, so there are people around and then a couple of friends of uh, Peter showed up and uh, they grabbed the mic and they talked a little bit. Um, one of his friends is uh, Sierra Lynch is her uh, 
nom de internet. And she's a humiliatrix. Uh, she arrives toward the end of the conversation and uh, talks a little bit about uh, her online um, gig, humiliating men for money. Um, but she's coming over tomorrow. We're going to do a full-length podcast uh, talking about her thing. So that's coming up. If you if you like the little taste of her you get at the end of this, uh, I'm sure you'll enjoy the, the full-length podcast coming soon. And uh, so I was thinking another if you're in if you're in Portland and you listen to this podcast, um, let me know if you would be interested in coming out to a live recording. I was thinking it might be fun to rent a space, even if it's just the back room of a bar or something like that, and uh, and like make it a party. You know, why not have have some people, even if it's ten or fifteen or thirty or forty or fifty. I've been on Dan Harmon's podcast a few times, which he records with an audience, and it's fun. It's cool to have people there and and get immediate um, immediate uh, response from people, and maybe have some questions from the audience and whatever. So if you think that's a cool idea, let me know. If you think it's a shitty idea, let me know. And uh, we'll see. Maybe we'll put something like that together. And uh, I think that's pretty much all I have to say. I hope you enjoy the podcast. And uh, we'll catch up with you next week. Thanks for listening, as always. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time? Think about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation yeah. I would think that's like having a target on your head Yeah, they weren't happy with it at all because of the two serpents It's the Hebrew word for life, chai. Yeah, that's l'chaim. the uh, Spock. You know, that's the whole Spock thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, I turned it into uh, two serpents joined at the base to make it an archaic symbol for regeneration out of the previous religion, yeah, the Babylonian tradition, of which the Hebrew tradition is basically bastardized. Um, and my but has anybody, ever, like, has anybody ever been you freaking Jew like... I mean, have you ever experienced anti-Semitism? Oh, anti-Semitism because of that. Um, you know, Jews always feel like we're experiencing anti-Semitism. Half the time, it's we bring it on ourselves in like a Woody Allen kind of way. Um, no, not openly. Yeah, interestingly. I got one here, too. Less, that's less visible, though. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. All right. One of the worst things to talk about on a podcast is uh, tattoos. tattoos. <laughs> For those of you who are wondering what the fuck is going on here, we're talking about something you can't see. Uh, Thank maybe, God. Maybe we'll put up a, a picture of your, your little finger. Yeah, my hairy white arms. <laughs> well, we don't need the shoulder, but the finger. Your yeah. your live long and prosper. Uh, all right. Welcome to another edition of this crazy podcast. I'm here with uh, Peter, who I did not ask you how to pronounce your name, but Bogosian. 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 Is that uh, Persian? Or my dad's Armenian. 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 Ah, okay, yeah. cool. All right, good. Uh, and Peter teaches at um, uh, Portland State University. Portland State. I get them all mixed up. There's Portland State. There's you're at Mount Hood. Mount Hood Community. And this College. is Andy Gurovich. Hello, uh, hello. Podcast Power Bottom. <laughs> Self-proclaimed. <laughs> all right. He's an in. And, uh, <laughs> and one of the things we're going to talk about a lot is your book, 
Uh, tell us, like, where, what's the genesis for the book? Why, why did you write it? You just wanted to jump on that uh, anti-religion gravy train? Uh, gravy train. There's <laughs> uh, no. no there's not only is there no money in atheism, it's a slow financial drain. Mm-hmm. No, I, I wrote it because I saw a problem in the world that I thought I could ameliorate, or at least, at least uh, address in a substantive or significant way. So my dad told me when I was a kid that my dad was a civil engineer. If you put a bale of hay in a riverbed, it will get a certain percentage of the contaminants from the bottom. Hmm. And to take more pollution out of the stream, you need to have different filtering mechanisms. And so, very quickly, I wonder if that principle was operative. At the time, I was lifting a lot of weights, and you know the, the whole principle from 9 to 10 being more difficult than 1 to 9. So I wondered if the same principle would be operative in the cognitive sphere. Like, if we could help people to just not use the most egregiously bad ways of thinking that we could address some serious parts, like throwing bales of hay in people's cognitive structures. So the book is, is it's called A Manual for Creating Atheists, yeah. right? Which makes it sound like it's primarily about religion, but the way you just described it made it sound like it's primarily about cognitive processes and, and careful, rational thought. Yeah, it's about overthrowing dogmatism. It's, it's a book that's designed to help people talk other people out of faith. So many people have written books to talk people into faith. Right. This is a book to help people talk people out of faith. And do it in a way that's not confrontational and offensive? Yeah, because you don't want to invoke someone's defensive posture. Right. So all of this stuff, I didn't just pluck this from the sky. This is all drawn from a vast body of peer-reviewed scholarship on what's effective and what works in the literature. The like neuro-linguistic programming, no, that kind of stuff? No, that's all bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron Brown has some good good stuff about that in his book. People think that he does NLP, does, but to my knowledge, that 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 is um, that's bogus. Yeah. So so when you say the stuff that works, what literature are you drawing from? Is it like sales marketing stuff? No, that's actually that's one of the few domains of thought it does not borrow from. Mm. So I taught in the prisons for years, and that's what my dissertation is about. I published Mm -hmm. those conversations. So. It works with a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy. It's specifically designed to change the, the cognitions of people who do not want their cognitions changed or people who don't think that they have a problem. So it draws from the literature on exiting cults. It draws from the literature on the Socratic method, which as I'm sure you know mm-hmm. has a, a long pedigree of, in the literature. And it draws from, boy, it draws from just about everything except sales and marketing. So I read, I just immersed myself in that for I don't know how many years and then practiced it every day and developed the techniques and honed them and refined them and tested them and then voila, a manual for creating atheists. Uh, You know, it's interesting to me that you say uh, sales and marketing is the one area that you don't draw from in, in, in a book that's about trying to enhance people's cognitive reasoning skills. Because if we look at the modern advertising culture based on the work of people like Ed Bernays, it's based entirely in circumventing the people's intellect and getting, getting them to make lifestyle choices entirely based on emotional connections, no, which is what you're actually talking about. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. A friend of mine said to me that we need to look at everybody like we're in a big Skinner box, and we need to just do this conditioning. And if you've seen my videos and such online, that's what I try to do with the slides. It's all 
as if someone's in a big Skinner box with red being bad and the, you know, I use the Lessig method. So from that stuff, but that's not really advertising, sales, and marketing. I just, you know, frankly, I just don't find that stuff as interesting. Mm -hmm. And so, and I don't really know a lot of the, or any of the peer-reviewed literature on that. So, so I didn't, I didn't pull from that. But people have subsequently emailed me and said, hey, you know, this is like or something. Right. A uh, little bit of trivia here for our listeners who don't know who Edward Bernays was. He uh, basically started the whole modern advertising uh, movement in what, the 20s, 30s? Yeah, yeah, yeah. the teens, yeah, and then yeah, in the 20s. Very yeah. early, but he just died in the 90s. I yeah, think. yeah, yeah mid 90s. Fuck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, he's the guy who started focus groups. Uh, he was famous for the "You've Come a Long Way, Baby." Yeah, campaign. Virginia Slims. Yeah, co-opting feminism to get women to. He was a part of the Creel Commission that helped sell World War One to the American public, uh, as well. And then after the war, um, they took all of those tactics they used to sell the policy. Uh, to the American public and also uh, the, the reconstruction to the to uh, the Europeans um, and said how are we going to use this Chomsky talks about this to manufacture consent among uh, a peaceful yeah. population yeah, and Frank Luntz and others have Luntz yeah it. absolutely yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the same yeah. kind of thing so trivia question who was Edward Bernays's uncle uh, an audience member has it. Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud, oh. exactly. That. Isn't cool. that funky? Yeah. Uncle yeah. Siggy. Yeah. yeah By the way, I, I should say we're recording this at uh, Lompoc uh, Brewery's Hedge House on Division while Street. While drinking beer. While drinking beer. They're very, very kind. They let us uh, plug into the wall, and and uh, we're not disrupting the place too much, but if you hear screaming children or barking dogs in the background, that's why. Uh, we recorded uh, a podcast right here, actually, where we're sitting on the porch with the guy, the uh, marijuana lab guy. Oh yeah, Alec Dixon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was that was an interesting one. Anyway, back back to the book, a manual for creating atheists. Um, I uh, I printed out the Amazon review or uh, the synopsis of it, so I just like to read that. Uh, it says, for thousands of years, the faithful have honed proselytizing strategies and talked people into believing the truth of one holy book or another. Indeed, the faithful often view converting others as an obligation of their faith and are trained from an early age to spread their unique brand of religion. Well, we see that happening a lot today, huh? The result is a world broken in large part by unquestioned faith. As an urgently needed counter to the tried and true tradition of religious evangelism, a manual for creating atheists offers the first ever guide not for talking people into faith, but for talking them out of it. Interesting, interesting concept there. What do you think about Buddhism? Do you consider Buddhism to be uh, a religion? I, I do, and there's some interesting stuff we could talk about that. I, I do. I, it depends. Okay, so in all of these conversations, you have to take a step back and ask, mm-hmm. well, you know, philosophy, how you define those terms. Does it make supernatural claims? Does it yeah. make claims about the world? I mean, that's the litmus test for me, and the answer clearly would be yes. And on the most pedestrian level, that somebody reincarnates throughout time in an avatar's body. So, I, I do consider it a, lig- a religion, and I'm not talking about yuppies who get futons and then consider themselves done Buddhist. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 that would be Andrew. I have a futon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's her futon. <laughs> so, yeah. I look like the Buddha. Yeah, well, be- because when I was reading this, <laughs> I, I was thinking. Holy book. There's no holy book in Buddhism. Um, proselytizing. There's not really proselytizing. Nobody really gives a shit if you're a Buddhist or not within the Buddhist community. There's no ritual to become a Buddhist. You know, there's no confirmation. There's no, 
sacrament. There's no, you know, catechism. You just say I'm a Buddhist and fine, you're a fucking Buddhist. Nobody's, you know, nobody's going to burn you for saying that or for not saying that. So I, for me, I wonder... A Muslim might burn you for saying A Muslim will burn you for anything. You know. <laughs> Listen to me. My wife's a Muslim, by the way. My, my wife was raised Muslim. <laughs> Is this thing on? <laughs> Are we recording? Right. We'll cut that. We'll cut that out. <laughs> there, we just We've lost, lost our guest. guest. We've lost our guest. Oh, yeah. Well, we started off like bad-mouthing the Jews, so we've got to have like some that. balance here, right? You know? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And you're the guy who has the problem with religion, right? (laughs) (laughs) And now we all do. We just made Bogosian cringe. That's the first, I think. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, what do you mean by, in one of your talks, you said something about transitioning beyond atheism. What what do you mean by that? What's the... Yeah, so I have the book, the talks, the public lectures, the popular pieces. And so I think it's, and we had briefly spoken about this, I think now what the free thought movement really needs, I think it needs a few things. I, I think it needs the idea of authenticity and belief revision, etc. And I, I think it needs what goes in faith's place, Want you know, what replaces faith. That's mm-hmm. an important component. But more than that, I think that I'm going to take a step back and I want to look at how to... This has been a huge thought in my life in the last five or six years... I really want to take a look at how to make people value certain attitudinal dispositions that will lead them to critical rationality. Mm-hmm. And so it's vital that to understand that critical thinking is not about a skill set. It's not about teaching people how to make inferences or analyze or ex- articulate themselves. It's about helping people to have certain values. You could teach somebody all the critical thinking in the world, but if there are arenas of discourse or domains of thought in which they won't apply those concepts, it doesn't do any good. It's a farce. It, it actually worsens their epistemic situation because then they think that they're good critical thinkers. So the, I want to transition beyond atheism and I want to really get down to the rudiments, the building blocks of critical rationality through the avenue of, of values and attitudinal dispositions. So g- give me an example of an attitudinal disposition. Trustfulness of reason. Trustfulness of reason. Willingness so. to reconsider one's beliefs. Ah. Willingness to say, I don't know. Joy yeah. in saying, Willingness I don't know. Willingness to say, I don't know. Joy I, yeah. in saying, I don't know. Yeah. Have you read Montaigne? Somewhat. I'm not conversing. He, he's, I just read um, a book called uh, something like How to Live Your Life or something. And mm-hmm. it's a, a sort of a, a, a looking at Montaigne and, and sort of w- working through his essays in terms of what they say about how to live your life and, and advice, basically. And the one thread that runs through everything and the one reason that so many people have loved Montaigne through the centuries is that he delights in his doubt. That he's completely upfront, saying, "Hey, I'm just some guy. I don't know, but this is the way it looks to me, right?" And and he's always every declaration he makes is framed in that. Uh, that's authenticity. Un- authenticity. That's exactly, epistemic yeah. humility. Yeah. That's in, in Plato's Gorgias. He says it's better to be refuted than it is to refute. But yeah, you know, this is interesting because this is also Descartes, right? This is Descartes' basis for his construction of self is his ability to doubt shows him that he exists. It's the one thing that he can anchor to that he can't disprove. 
about himself is his doubting faculty, and it's really the basis of the French Revolution, of French rationalism, um, but isn't Descartes and of socialistic values. Isn't Descartes responsible for the whole notion that only human beings are legitimate beings and animals are nothing more than automatons yes, because yeah, they can't that, think? He, yeah, exactly. He thought that when an animal was crying when you were torturing it, it was a malfunctioning machine. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, Fuck Descartes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> hey, wait. And he was probably a Muslim. Muslim. He was probably a Muslim. We say stuff about Muslims, fine. A guy burns a a dog, suddenly we can't talk about him. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we can talk about him as long as I get to yell, fuck him, every once in a while, you know? But my point is that this this notion is also associated... with a lot of socialistic uh, socialistic values as well, so uh, in terms of that transition out of just the person's ability to be a critical thinker and actually helps foster um, sustainable and um, stable communities, right? See, I, I would think it would transcend any, not just economic system, but any system in which the means of production and distribution are, dist- are either localized or distributed. I, I, think, I think that those are kind of the categorical imperatives or these constituent elements of... of what it means to be rational. But how do we... So, to me, the question is, how do we help people value that? And that's a massive question. That's, so, that would be the next book I want to write, but everybody tells me it's not going to sell. Don't even think about it. <laughs> so, to be... Uh, Are you guys familiar with the... the be- sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. It's your show. Sorry. Ed. Ed McMahon. <laughs> yeah, right. I'll just drink my vodka. <laughs> you you just like go, hey every once in a while, and we'll be fine, all right? Uh Give a monkey a uh, no, I, I wanted to. I wanted to follow up on this: the, the centrality of doubt and the, the valuing of doubt. Because indispensable. Indispensable. And one of my favorite expressions is uh, uh, value the man or the person who seeks the truth, but fear those who claim to have found it. Right. And many people have said that over the years. But and this is my complaint about the atheism movement. Right. That they're so fucking certain. Richard Dawkins is so goddamn certain. Christopher Hitchens was certain. I, I haven't read Sam Harris. I've met him, but I haven't read his books. Um, and and my, I think a lot of people, the discomfort that a lot of people have with the sort of new atheism movement or whatever it's being called these days is the certainty that everybody's wrong. Everybody who's got religious belief is wrong or, or faith, however they define it or any sort of belief in a superior being. I mean, Einstein believed in superior patterns that one could call God, right? So how do you line up with the certainty of the deniers of religion? So the only person with whom I'm familiar, and I, I could be wrong, but I engage, I think about this stuff constantly, but the only person I know who plays, so Dawkins has a scale in the God delusion, a one to seven with one being absolute belief and seven being absolute disbelief, and he places himself at a high six. The only person I know who places himself at, at an eight is Victor Stenger. Who says he can actually disprove God? I think what we need to do now is we need to talk about what the definition of atheism is, which I, I would right. like to offer a definition if that's yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, please. And then I'd like to incorporate that with your question. Right. So my definition of atheist, and I'm certainly not saying it has to be anybody else's, is I do not believe there's sufficient evidence to warrant belief in God, but if I were shown that evidence, then I would believe. Right. Okay, so now let's take that definition. I don't think my reading of the response to new atheism is not specifically the the four horsemen through whom you've discussed and done it. It, it, It's not that people are upset with their certitude and they view it as a certain type of uh, parallel dogmatism. I think 
I think that part of the problem part of the problem is that when you call out people on beliefs so, so for example if I said to you hey Chris uh, how certain are you that werewolves don't run around here you would be fairly certain about that but the but the fact that you're vocal about that now I don't know anybody and I mm. do I these guys are like my close friends I engage them all the time I don't know anybody who just a priori from the get-go says that's bullshit the the idea is that we need to see evidence for things and right. absent that absent your evidence for werewolves it just doesn't it, you have to call it you have to be honest right. okay but did doesn't your definition of atheism supplant what used to be called agnosticism i uh, thought atheism was disbelief in god uh, again that that's why different people use terms in different ways i, yeah. my, I don't want to be the linguistic police i'm no linguistic <laughs> no but we have to be clear linguistic we don't know what we're talking I, about th- yeah. that's the definition that i'm offering different people offer different things for agnosticism and there's like agnostic atheist agno- i don't even know what any of these things mean uh. that's why in any conversation i think it's you just have to talk about that's when sure. I use the word atheism. That's what I mean. Well, uh, when I when I've read your book the, and some of the interviews and stuff you've done, the the notion I get is that you're not because a lot of theists that I've talked to <clears throat> they want to turn this into a, a situation of competing beliefs. You believe there is no God; they believe there is, and so now we're going to duke it out with our competing belief systems. And when I read the book, um, I see you saying something different by talking about addressing epistemology. You're saying, "No, I don't want to get into this my belief versus your belief." I'm asking you the question: Why is it better to base things in our, our understanding of the world on belief than it is on actual data and information? Why is that a preferred method of knowing? Why is belief a preferred yeah. method of knowing? Yeah, thanks. Than, and I. Yeah. Go to great lengths in the book to talk about in fact it's a part of a chapter don't talk about God, don't discuss God, talk about how people know things it's the old Socratic question mm-hmm. it's helping people to live more thoughtful and examined lives so is there a place for faith in life in, no. in your view? There's no, no but place. we should probably define that and that's yeah, one of the, yeah, the main right. sticking points of the Christian apologists and, and other folks is the definition of faith. Now you're married, right? I am. We're not going to talk about your sex life. Okay. All right. But do you believe that your wife is your soulmate, your other half? And do you, are you a romantic? I don't, I don't accept the term soulmate. So, because uh, yeah, you I, don't. I do you believe there's a soul? Well, no, I just. I one of the things that I'd like to do is I'd like to extirpate all religious or faith-based language from our vocabulary. Oh, good luck with that. Well, I didn't. I mean, yeah, there'd be no soul music anymore. What an we, 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 <laughs> <laughs> or at the very <laughs> least, I want to start by helping people to become more conscious of when they use religious verbiage. Yeah. You ever listen to Parliament Funkadelic? No. They have a song called What is Soul? Now, this is like nine black guys in 1968 Coke doing Coke. a lot of acid. Yeah. yeah, and probably Coke too. Anyway, What is Soul? You know that song? Mm-hmm. And they go through Soul. Is a ham hock in your cornflakes? <laughs> Soul is a ring around your bathtub. <laughs> it's, it's a great meditation on soul. But what was your? I don't. Well, what, point the, the, the point is that you know, faith. I think you know, we're dancing around this concept of faith and and whether it's got any legitimate function in our lives. And I think faith plays. You know, my. My uh, the 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 edifice that I've been attacking is is monogamy and the idea that you find your perfect other and that's it and that's the only person you're ever going to want to have sex with again and you know you sort of found your other half 
And one of the things that we did when we uh, critiqued that is we look at popular culture and how we build up, our culture builds up this notion of the perfect one, the, the, you know, we found the one, she's the one, he's the one. And that's all faith. It's bull- I think it's I, bullshit. I was up to you up until that point. What, why, what makes that faith? Well, because it's I think you said fake, not faith. Oh, faith. no, no, I said, no, I said faith. Oh, faith. Yeah, Sorry. yeah, yeah. Be- because you because you're operating uh, in a non-rational realm. If you believe that the person you found this one other person on Earth that you would oh, be I see happiest how you're with, using the word. Yeah, okay. You know what I mean? It's yeah. it's uncritical thinking. Yeah. Because you will probably be happier if you don't think about it critically. Because if you're always thinking, yeah, I could probably do a little better, you know, or now I'm making more money. I might trade this one in on a new model. Uh, okay, so I, I would offer that the best way to live it, live your life in that context is to be authentic, is to say to your significant other, your, your wife, I love you. I, I'm very attracted to you. I'd like to sleep with other women. And that, I mean, I think that's just a more honest and authentic way to approach it. I've got a book for you, brother. Yeah, yeah. it's called <laughs> Sex at Dawn. Sex at Dawn. What woman want? Perv? What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, um, all right. So anyway, where were we? You you wanted to jump in here. I cut you off. Andrew. Oh, um, I think I was going to say something about. Um, I'm interested. Maybe I guess two part question for you to, to define faith when you say there's no role for faith um, in in culture, and then maybe a second part uh, to the question, and we can revisit them because this is what I was going to say earlier. Um, I was reminded on the way over here of what happened um, around the time of the Enlightenment, right? And so we have um, thinkers, this is the beginning of modern science in Western Europe, and they're trying to extricate themselves from church control, from being ruled by mythological thinking, um, by rabid mythological thinking, right? And so the scientific method is is developed. Um, Descartes says he doesn't want to get his head cut off, and so he says, we'll deal with things that don't deal with the church, We'll deal with the, the physical matters. The church deals with the non-physical, right, as a way to kind of safely say we're going to start analyzing things and thinking critically over here. But don't worry, we're not, uh, we're not stepping on the church's territory. But during the Enlightenment, this notion of the age of reason starts that reason is going to be all we need. Reason is going to save us. Re- uh, rationality is that which will uh, lift mankind out of its quagmire. Right. And by the end of the Enlightenment, we already were not thinking that anymore, right? So it was Descartes that said uh, the, the purpose of reason is to show the limitations of reason. This is the point of the romantic renaissance when you have Shelley and Coleridge and Byron. Uh-huh. There's the classic quote from, I think it was Coleridge, that uh, it might be uh, Shelley. The line is, um, on life's great ocean, diversely we sail, reason is the card or the map, and passion is the gale or the wind. That blows, and so how do you how do you tap into people's need? This is what advertising does. This is why religion. People have an evolutionary trigger to connect profoundly, emotionally, to one another and to the and to the universe. Um, and so, how do you get? How do you trigger that in a way that leads them towards rational thinking, as opposed to away from it? Boy, that has to be unpacked. That was a huge thought. So yeah, you're, yeah. you're talking about you're talking about the Alfklara, you know, the Enlightenment tradition. And that, by the way, is, is what I would say that the book is bracketed or framed within that concept that reason is emancipation. Reason, the emancipatory potential of reason and rationality is what's going to save us. It's not faith, which leads to arbitrary conclusions. It's not, uh, as the definition of it, it's not hope or it's not trust. It's 
formulating your beliefs from the basis of the best available evidence is the only hope we have to sh solve shared problems and address this. Mm -hmm. So if your question is, and then the other thing that you mentioned, although not specifically by name, you talked about romanticism and the romantic movement, which it's, you're right, it is, it, it taps into a different, um, it taps into a different part of who we are as people. If the question is, do people lose something from rationality, then to get back to your tattoo, <laughs> I think that that is adopting a concept of rationality that's very Gene Roddenberry, that's very Spock, that an, a, a rational okay. person cuts off their emotional life. That, that is not found in the history of Western intellectual thought. You know, Plato talks about what it means to be rational is... It's like a chariot with reason as uh, reason as the first horse in the chariot with desire, etc. Hmm. And so, I, I think that we can slake or discharge our urges for things, for love, for sex, for poetry, for art, gustatory, auditory, etc. That doesn't compromise the the enlightenment project. That certainly doesn't. I don't. I don't see any. Um, I don't see that those are irreconcilable at all. Do you see them as opposed in any way? I. I think that I see how people think that they could be opposed. But they are, aren't they? In so many situations, you you get pissed off at somebody because uh, they cut in front of you in traffic, right? Your rationality tells you don't be pissed off. He, that guy didn't even see you. It had nothing to do with you. You're sitting in coach, and the guy in front of you puts his seat back, and you're, oh, fuck that guy. You, you have all these reactions as an animal, but your rationality tells you that guy's just you know doing the same thing I would do, whatever. I, I see them in conflict often, you know, as, as trying to be a rational, reasonable person, constantly uh, trying to tamp down the emotional responses to things. I don't. I don't think being reason. I don't think being rational means tapping down your emotional responses. I mean, if someone cuts in front of you in in traffic or just goes out of their way to be a dick to you, the way that you respond to that says more about you than it does about them. Right. Whether yeah. or not you your rationality is in control of your. Instinctive yeah, responses. So I think if we step back from the conversation a bit and we ask ourselves, l let's see if we can come to some shared agreement about what, what it means. And at some level, I would think it would be, and you asked me about Buddhism, what are we talking about in terms of objective claims? My feeling states do not lead me to any objective claims. They just don't. Now, my feeling states lead me to subjective claims. I, I ordered a dark beer. I don't know what you guys got. You got vodka, huge thing of vodka there. But, but a tanker. I got to judge. Yeah, right? so those are those are those are subjective. And yeah. so once we can agree on that, then we can, to to borrow a metaphor, we we can fine tune it. We can we can tune it down. But I don't think yeah. I don't think that they're in conflict. Yeah, I, I've got a good friend who's a who's a great musician. Uh, he was a child prodigy. He was winning national composition. Uh, uh, competitions in the U.S. when he was 13, 14 years old. Uh, incredible guy. And he actually turned me on to classical music. I never understood classical music until he sat down at my father's piano. We were like 14 or 15 and played a Chopin etude wow. and blew my fucking mind, yeah, right? And I remember talking to him one time about, uh, about how incredibly moving it must be. To, to be able to create that stuff, to be on a stage and be playing that. And he said to me, no, man, it's just, it's just work. It's just what I do. It's mathematics. You know, it's, um, I don't feel it. If I feel it, it gets in the way. 
And ever since I've, I've always thought, like, how, you know, some musicians, I'm sure not all feel that way. I don't think Prince is like that, right? <laughs> Prince, did you, ever, did you see that thing on Facebook? Did you send me that? Somebody oh, sent me yeah. Prince performing in, in Minneapolis, Purple Rain, and that was the recording that went on to the album, one take. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's incredible to see it happening. Anyway, talk. this is why it's called Tangentially Speaking, by the way. You're fine. You're, no, you're fine. Go, go. <laughs> what the fuck Prince has to do with any yeah. of this? Uh, anyway, I, I'm, just, I, I, I'm stuck on this notion that there is an inherent conflict. Not always, but there is often an inherent conflict between rationality and emotion or faith or, or what, what was i talking about earlier was it faith or emotion fuck I'm well, both. so i'm gonna drink can, here you guys talk can, can i perhaps situate it in something yeah. you might be familiar with sure we, we can see if you can as long as it related to prince somehow <laughs> no it's related <laughs> to sex oh okay well, oh, that's, that's prince, yeah. prince yeah. <laughs> so maybe you or maybe one has a conception that one loves somebody and they're to use a, a ter- polyamory is very uh, popular among atheists. That <laughs> one's <laughs> primary wonder why you're in the right scene, <laughs> man. <laughs> one's primary partner is great, and they love them, but they they want to have sex with other people. And how does that make somebody feel? And so they maybe they get a little jealous, maybe they become upset. Maybe even though, say, they text the person is texting them about their date the whole time, or you know, maybe they, without being overly explicit, although I don't have to worry about that on this podcast, <laughs> maybe they use that to incorporate that in their sex lives to enhance our sex lives. Yeah. Uh, so th- th- there could be it. One has the idea, like I know that my girlfriend or my wife is going to engage in this behavior. I want her to be happy. I'm going to use this to strengthen my intimacy. So rationally, one can know that, but emotionally, one can feel one's heart drop. Right. Out. Perfect example. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's all I'm saying is that in so many situations, there is this inherent opposition, I think, between the, the completely rational approach to something and uh, other parts of the, the human experience. So you're so calling Chris's audience a bunch of godless whores, is, is what I hear from sluts, them. Sluts, I think. Oh, sorry, They're sorry. doing it for free. Yeah, <laughs> Sluts, my do mis- it for free. My hey, there's a t-shirt, huh? <laughs> Let's print those up. You familiar with um, Robinson Jeffers? Poet? Uh, yeah. I'm still back on this. Oh, I'm sorry. No, go, go, ahead. Ahead. go ahead. No, no, no go. So, the, but, but the way that we make sense, that experience becomes intelligible to us through rationality like we reflect on that right we think about that we feel about that and then polyamorous do right but not the not your typical person i mean they might reflect on it but they're not reflecting on it from a rational perspective i would say i would say that's a relatively unusual see what do you what do you mean by from a rational perspective in other words the way you described it i i often think about um sex and food as being very similar right so when someone comes to me and says look I think polyamory makes perfect sense. I understand in your book you talk about how humans didn't evolve to be long-term monogamous, and that's why we have these urges. That makes perfect sense to me. But when I think about my wife fucking someone else or my husband, it blows my mind. I can't take it. I completely sympathize with that because I always think about eating dogs, (laughs) right? I have eaten dog, but I didn't know I was eating dogs at the time. Mm. Won't get into that story. Or eating insects. Rationally, I know insects can be completely uh, nutritious, low fat, you know, high protein, safe, fantastic, whatever. 
but I'd have to be fucking starving before I, you know, knowingly eat insects. That's irrational. It's stupid, but you know, there you go. So, yeah, so I, I think we're stuck on that, so right? Since, since we go on tangents, so yeah. I've been thinking about that. I I use the my my wife didn't like it. She's a um, professor of medicine and she's a PhD in anthropology too. But I I use the term cultural module, and she didn't like it, but. But I think it kind of makes sense. I, I think maybe we have certain cultural modules or views of views of what we think, how we think we should live that are, we, we tend to have a kind of cultural myopia about these things. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that, the, the, especially whenever you talk about something emotional and perhaps something sexual or something, that that, that I mean, I think that that, that would be a, a good example to me of when there could be a conflict between emotional states, feeling states that one has, particularly right. if it's with another, with a bond that somebody has. I, 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 and I know you, this is way out of my area. I mean, this is your area. I would say it's less having sex with somebody and more the emotional intimacy with somebody. Like well, if your wife dropped ecstasy right. with somebody and just, you know, really made love for six hours, I think that would be different than if you had sexual intercourse with her and a woman or a guy or what have you or maybe i'm wrong no no that's that's certainly true and um and and i do think intimacy is the issue because i'm not bonding so much because you know i I reflect on food and i think we have a very intimate relationship with food right it's in our mouths we're tasting it we're savoring it it's very personal intimate connection we have to food and i think that's why cultural taboos or cultural modules as you say are so powerful in food and in sexuality um, you know, I'm reminded of, uh, was it Joseph Campbell talked about detribalization, mm. you know, recognize, and Marshall McLuhan called it extra environmentalist. I don't yeah. think food is, I don't, th- maybe I'm wrong if I understand correctly, I don't think food is the right analogy to draw because there's no, everybody can have an own, their own isolated experience, food experience, but there's no reciprocity with another person. There's no question of being violated or hurt. Or no, or no. I, ju- I just mean in terms of the culture, uh, cultural programming being very deeply embedded and difficult to think your way out of. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm not I saying think it's dog. This, I think dog w- would be a good example, assuming that one ate cows and pigs, right? That, yeah. Right. So. Oh yeah, uh, both sex and eating are traditionally associated with early religious traditions because they have to do with regeneration. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and usually together. This is why we still eat Jesus. Indians were terrified when they first met white people because they went, "We pray to the Great Spirit. These people eat there." <laughs> they had no fucking idea. They thought we were cannibals. Yeah, serious. Yeah. Uh, the reason I mentioned Robinson Jeffers earlier is he's got a, a poem that I really love, uh, which gets into this. It's called "The Excesses of God." And I won't read the whole thing, um, but I, it starts off. It says, "Is it not by His high superfluousness we know our God?" For to be equal in need is natural, animal, mineral. But to fling rainbows over the rain and beauty above the moon and secret rainbows on the domes of deep seashells and make the necessary embrace of breeding beautiful also as fire, not even the weeds to multiply without blossom nor the birds without music. There is the great humanness, humaneness at the heart of things, the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand that to me that's if i try to think of uh you know gesture toward a god it's that it's that 
So I didn't understand a word of that, by the way. You, did you not hear it or just not understand it? I didn't get it. You didn't get it. What he's saying is, he's saying, I think, I recognize the presence of God in the, um, the surplus beauty in the world. Sex doesn't have to feel that good. It could feel half that good and we'd all still do it. Uh, you, there don't need to be these rainbows on the domes of seashells in the bottom of the ocean that nobody ever sees. The sunset doesn't have to be so fucking spectacular. There's no reason for all this incredibly, what he calls this high superfluousness. Okay, okay. Um, you know, and I think this is, this is where we get into, I think the, the emotional resistance that people have to, um, to atheism because it seems to deny... Something about the 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 generosity of the universe. You know what I'm talking about, or uh, no? I have no idea what you're talking about. I mean, do, <laughs> d- does neither do I. That's all right. N- no, but I guess you could think about it like this: Does my my saying to you, there's not sufficient evidence to warrant belief in Thor make it have any reflection on the generosity of the universe or the compassion that we ought to show to other people? No, well, small acts of kindness, right? Well, not as long as you're locating it in Thor. If we're locating it in the supernatural... See, there you go. Okay, so that whole idea that you've articulated, that's been something that's been co-opted by the religious narratives. Right. And we need to get over that. We, we need to actively and consciously have some kind of a... And I talk about this in the book, A Man for Creating Atheist. We need some kind of a containment protocol because... The the faithful have really hijacked a lot of these narratives, so that even the very f- the you just asking the question means that you've bought into this idea, right? Asking which question? The making it, and then we got to get more beers. Um, <laughs> the The idea that with God there's generosity, right. with God with <coughs> excuse me with there's some kind of a linkage between faith and kindness and and the you know fa- sex could feel half as good or eating could feel half as good and would still do it it's the surfeit of god it's this it's the I mean, miraculousness of existence i th- i think I, I think yeah i think what you're saying is not that some people say with god you get those things but that god is indeed those things itself those things are that, yeah. the 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 the, the, the kind of pantheistic proto pantheistic yeah, I mean, I think people feel, and, and I, who am I to speak for people, you know, but <laughs> myself, when, when I engage in this debate or hear the debate, uh, for example, I was in Mexico a few months ago where um, Richard Dawkins de- debated Chopra. Deepak Chopra. Yeah, I was sitting in the front row with uh, Robert Sapolsky on one side and Helen Fisher on the wow. other. Wow, yeah. great company. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I know. It was. Guy walks into a bar. <laughs> exactly. It was, it was amazing. Uh you know, and and it was just like, uh, and I don't I don't mean to offend you, I, I, if Richard's your friend, but I, I don't know him personally very well at all. But I I felt like it was like you know the charlatan versus the grumpy old man. There was no neither one of them was making any sense. Richard Dawkins was just saying you're full of shit, you're full of shit, you're full of shit. And Deepak Chopra was saying, but, you know, you have no appreciation for the miraculousness of the world and, you know, all his quantum mechanic bullshit and all that. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, it was it was pretty pretty embarrassing. So what you but, didn't like? I'm sorry. Uh, the the point is that I think that 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 um, the voice of atheism that, that's coming through in in mainstream media, and I haven't read your book, so I'm not blame I'm not pinning this on you, but I think the resistance a lot of people have is that there seems to be a denial of miraculousness. And I think that almost, most people, particularly people who have experienced hallucin- hallucinogens or who have had near-death experiences or whatever, uh, have an appreciation for miraculousness and um, a firsthand experience of it. They're not calling it necessarily God or Jesus or Thor. Okay, so we need to step back right now. Right. And again, the terms... Mm-hmm. We, so when you say miraculousness, you're not talking about... What do you, what do you All right. just an appreciation yeah. of life? Well, here's this quote from Einstein I was talking about. Mm-hmm. He said that to sense that behind everything that can be experienced, there is something that our minds cannot grasp, whose beauty and sublimity, sublimity reaches us only indirectly. This is religiousness, he said. And in that sense, I'm religious. So uh, that's what I'm talking about. I think that's what Robinson Jeffers is talking about. That's what as Max well. Planck is talking about, the physicist. Right. This is what Carl Sagan is talking about. This is what Brian Swim, the cosmologist, is talking about. There's a g- growing list of scientists who who don't talk about a a transcendence apart from the universe or behind it, or but but that is manifested in it. That the universe itself is miraculous enough. So Brian Swim is a cosmologist who just teaches what he calls deep history, and he just teaches the history of the universe yeah. as we know it. He says you the, the cells in your body come out of stars uh, 14 billion years ago, right? And when you teach that to people, that's miraculous enough to inspire them with a sense of awe and connectivity. You don't have to call it Thor or Yahweh or, or, or anything else, right? Just the actual information itself when transmitted to people is miraculous enough to I fill them with a sense of awe and beauty okay. and connect- so, beauty and physics is a concept. So I'm I'm and maybe this is my blinder or my short sightedness, but I'm I guess when when you spoke I got caught up in the language. Mm-hmm. And so what you just how you articulated miraculousness is actually very divorced from how the vast majority of Americans would define miraculous Catholics. Fuck the vast majority of Americans. <laughs> okay, well, my book, that's, <laughs> yeah. but that's my book is written yeah. to disabuse those people mm-hmm. of radical silliness, Good right? Good luck, right. brother. Yeah. Well, okay, but back to this yeah. idea. I, I, I do think that, so we don't obviously say a prayer in my house, but we go around the table and we say what we're all grateful for every night. And when you come to the house for dinner, well, do you over too if you want next Tuesday? Love to, man. Yeah, yeah, cool, cool. Have you over? Um, We talk about what we're all grateful for, and I think that there's having that appreciation of 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 people and of life. And you know, I'm 47 now. It's like every day that I live, I'm so freaking grateful. Like every moment of my life, I'm just awash in gratitude for the people and my relationships and my friends and my family and my kids and my wife and my friends. But but there's, I, I, I don't, if you mean by miraculous, it, it depends what you mean by, by miraculous. I mean, that fills me with awe and wonder. Like, that's awesome. Mm. And that's something that we need to both grasp a hold of and, as the Buddhists say, let go. Mm. You know, we need to really be conscious and grateful, but not so tightly to that that we, and I don't mean this to be in a new age way, but that we don't live in the now anymore. Right. So do you feel fortunate then? Is is the gratitude based on feeling fortunate? I 
I, I am incredibly fortunate. I mean, I'm able-bodied for the most part. Uh, I, you know, my hearing in my left ear and such, but I, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I have a, uh, a low-paying job as a state employee, <laughs> but I have health care in this country. Yeah, that's pretty stable. Kind of. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I, I feel incredibly grateful for my life, but it's not that I'm grateful to... Excuse me, I'm not grateful to a higher power. I'm not grateful for something outside of myself. It's just a feeling of gratitude. And, and I think it is important to be humble. But that hum- yeah, humility shouldn't be artificial. Right. That humility shouldn't be in service to something that can't... That Yeah. Yeah, if you can fake humility, you can fake anything, right? I, mean. <laughs> what do you, I wonder what you say about the... Um, you know, because when we say reason should guide us... But, you know, God or no God, because, again, it's so much the terminology. What do you have to say about this notion of, for lack of a better term, the somatic nervous system or intuition? Don't, don't as, as, as animals, aren't we also intuitive creatures that have a way of understanding our place in the, in the world and to ascertain threats or opportunities or problems or whatever that is not purely rational but is instinctual? And, and shouldn't we also learn, you know, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, is... is Training the intuition. Yeah, the Fuck got, Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, well, right, 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 right. I like his hair, man. What do you want me to say? <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, right, right. I'm yeah. fucking everybody yeah. on this show. <laughs> yeah, he's Damn. Wild. So I guess the I'm question is, where, where does intuition play in, in, in this? Human it's intuition. There's some good stuff, some good literature on intuition. I don't know it that well. It depends mm-hmm. what you mean by intuition. Uh, a buddy of mine was telling me that he thinks that we can cultivate certain aspects of our intuition. I, I, look, it... I guess it all comes back to this idea of being more self-conscious, being more thoughtful, being more reflective, being more honest. And then we can develop mechanisms by which we can differentiate when when we have these intuitions or feelings or you know is it how how should is there a should for how I should feel if my girlfriend or boyfriend or wife or sleeps with somebody else like how should I feel about eating dog given the fact that I eat other mammals like how should I so I think we have these intuitions and trying to figure out what is placed in us by our culture right I think that is an indispensable part of humanity and rationality yeah. and I think that that gets back to what we spoke about before I, I would like to help people to value that right yeah, no, I, I'm with you, man. That's been my life's work as well. Distinguish the human from the American, the Chinese, or the the me, the individual. Try to what is universal in human beings, you know. And let's say so. I mean, let, let's say that that there really were some things that were universal that we find repugnant. Do we find them repugnant based upon a con- cultural conception? I'll give you an example of race, for example. Mm. Or do we find them repugnant because we can reason through certain moral positions? Well, taking a shit. We find that repugnant. Everybody does it. Apparently, you don't find it repugnant. He's thinking, <laughs> thinking. Well, no, I was thinking, thinking of the the literature Jonathan Haidt has on disgust. This oh, disgust, yeah, disgust. yeah, disgust is a, an excellent place to look. What you know? Here's here's something, and I don't mean to be challenging you, but you can tra- it, dude, it's look, fun you, to bounce balls look, off the wall. You challenge me, I'm not, and if I don't know, I'm just going to say I don't know. Yeah. And if you challenge me, and and you know, I 
No, look, if I just if don't want to fuck up me, this invitation no, to dinner on Tuesday. No, you, <laughs> yeah, you're, I'm you're going. You're good to go, man. You're <laughs> good to go. You'll, I'll just I'm take in. it out on him. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm in. Don't take my plate. But don't seriously, man. I mean, really. Yeah, have at it. No, you know, because I'm writing about this. I'm writing a book now, and one of the chapters is on God and and religion and all this, and. One of the we'll co- sorry, we'll cost you one more though. Oh yeah, yeah. We're, we we'll we'll pause this whenever you, you guys, want. You guys, huh? we can get it. Well, we'll pause this and, and get beers. Yeah. All right. You you people don't out there in the world don't mind while we get a beer. Um, but let me let me just get through this this point. Um, you know, I I think that uh, who was it that said Philip K. Dick? I think said. Reality is that which, when you stop believing exactly. in it, doesn't disappear. Doesn't look, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. a great, great quote. But, you know, and I, I underlined that or whatever years ago when I first read it, and I've carried it around ever since. But recently I'm thinking, nah, I'm not sure I follow it completely anymore because I'm thinking about placebo. You know, placebo is something that both exists and doesn't exist. And it's based on belief. So... If someone is raised in a situation, family, culture, whatever, in which there is a God, in which they believe strongly in a God, they go to church, they smell the incense and the, you know, the, the light and all that shit, right? So they've got all these associations. There's a power there that can be activated in their lives that has a concrete effect on their life, even though us looking at it from outside can say there's nothing there. That's just empty ritual and, you know, whatever cultural conditioning. But it has an effect, just like a placebo can, you know. So I think that many atheists downplay the effects, the positive effects of delusions. A buddy of mine who's a psychiatrist was telling me about a study in which they... I might not have this correct. It's good that I told you this before we get yet another beer. But (laughs) uh, telling me about a study about men who on a scale from 1 to 10, rated their own attractiveness. And then they had other people rate their own attractiveness. And the men, and I can get you the news, so I'll get you this for your listeners as well at the this end of this. great. I need this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and those, so this speaks to the power, the power of delusion <laughs> and the power of self-deception. Yeah. Those men who rated themselves higher than everybody else rated them Tend to have tended to have more sexual partners and and more sexual in, intercourse and it could be other exogenous variables like people women were picking up on confidence or what have you and but that that's out of my area. I can't hey, false confidence is confidence, right? And yeah, it tends so to build on the, itself. That's part of the delusion. Yeah. And so these people, you know, we're speaking about these people, yeah. and it could very well be that having faith-based delusions enables one to do things that one could not often do. Some people, there's some literature about this, Daryl Ray and others disagree, but there's some literature about the 12-step program, and I think it's step 11 and someone in step 12 that that talk about God. And it could be that enables people to do something, they just realize they can't do it to themselves and they give it up to a higher power. They're really Mm. giving it up to themselves. But that delusion Mm. of doing that could enable them to do things that they might not ordinarily Well, that's do. what I was getting at earlier when I was uh, awkwardly asking about love and, you know, your soulmate and all that. Because I think that there is a, a romanticism that is essentially healthy, certainly in a relationship level, and and probably leads to more happiness than the alternatives. But it is essentially a delusion, right? Uh, uh, well, uh, I guess I will speak about my relationship i um i find 
authenticity, incredible intimacy, not just physical intimacy, but honesty. I find that to be the greatest aphrodisiac. I don't think there's anything delusional about it whatsoever. No, no, I, I'm not saying it's delusional to love someone. I'm saying that a lot of people are under the impression that they have found the one and that that's whereas the only they, person. Whereas they could be equally happy and have that a lot of intimacy. Right. Yeah, unquestionably yeah. that's true. Yeah. But that comes from this mythos, this narrative, you know, women in particular get this, oh, you know, white dress, you know, the guy swooping off the horse, the yeah. running at each other in a field. Yeah, that's a, that's a tampon commercial. Isn't it? Was that a tampon commercial? Hard to not, tell them about Not a white horse, man. No. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a real mess. A white horse. All right. On that note, we're going to pause and get some more beers. Huh? Is everybody good with that? All right. All right. We're back. We got our beers. Everybody's oh, got a fresh going. beer. We're live. And you're live. Your mic is live. Don't talk about what you were just talking about. Right. Uh, so, Andy, you were going to say something? I've, I now have a, a big furry thing on my, my microphone, well. which should stop the... You know what this is called? It's only a matter of time. This is called a dead... Do care? A dead kitten. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. L- it's, literally. It's called, literally called a dead kitten. If you nice. can order it on Amazon. It, uh, so that should stop the popping. Uh, you were going to talk about what an exercise you do with your students. Yeah, just something that what you've been talking about. You mentioned Thor a bit ago. Um, and I, I do an exercise with my world religion students to talk about. I've been talking about how a lot of atheists have become more vocal since 9-11 because of the thing itself and because of the response and this this tendency of heads of state to frame things in, in religious terms and uh, how problematic that is. And how we've normalized it as a culture. You were talking about these cultural codes before, or modules. Um, So George Bush said, um, at a microphone, said that God told him that he needed to invade Iraq. And and even people that that don't believe in in God or don't believe in the same God as George Bush or aren't Republicans, this notion of God telling you to do something is within the frame of reference in Western society. It's a possibility. God can tell some people to do things. Unless he's speaking through a dog. Yeah, right, right. uh, Son of Sam. Son of Sam, right. Then it's out of bounds. A donkey, fine, apparently. Um, (laughs) And so I tell my students to think about what it would feel like if, say, Barack Obama goes to the microphone tomorrow and says, I had a dream last night and uh, Thor came to me, and you had mentioned Thor before, and told me we need to invade Syria. And uh, we're going to commit U.S. troops. We're going to commit our dollars for 10 years to this campaign. How much terror would you feel and what would you think would need to be done if somebody said Zeus or Ashtara or... The same thing I felt when George Bush said that impeachment. So that again gets back to processes that people use, right? And so when you in the book, the follow-up question was when you how how has it worked when you when you write this book? And I mean, I read some interviews with you when you say you're in the bank and you see a teller with a a cross on, and you go and you make sure you go up to that teller, and you start you start getting after it with them, right? And how how, do you you get thrown out of the bank? How does it work? Have you been able to really engage people in your classes? One one thing you'll find is people of faith who actually everybody wants to talk about their faith. Well, right. So it's just it's easy. It's not you don't have to force it. Those engagements, those conversations, and oh come on, tell me about Jesus. I mean, come on, I really want to. So why why do people want to talk about their faith? And is that universal, or is that just a it's American? It's not universal. It's not. Christian. You don't find it in Judaism. It's yeah, you don't find in Buddhism. Say, right. it's, you don't find it in Jain, Jainism. You don't find it. In, no, it's certainly not universal. I think that there's a <laughs> that proselytism, proselytizing is an indispensable part of certain Abrahamic traditions. Right. Hmm. Two of the three. I think that. M- m- 
my own my own personal speculation is that people don't believe it themselves. They're just pretending to know things they don't know. Uh. And there's some interesting literature on Mormons who go away to do their missions, right? Not necessarily to make other Mormons, although that's a nice benefit, but to convince themselves that, that yeah. these mm-hmm. the I interviewed and a guy, a Mormon, who did that, who, who went to Puerto Rico for his uh, missionary years. And, uh, yeah, lost it completely. He lost He came back, and he lost the faith when his gay brother was not allowed to attend his sister's wedding. Was not allowed in the temple. There's that documentary about those two Mormons who, during their mission, start making porn movies too. <laughs> Orgasmo, I think it was. Can called. I oh, really? can I call yeah. you on a, a documentary? Word you use? Yeah, sure. So I think it's much more productive instead of saying you lost faith to abandon faith. Because mm. if someone loses something, like if you lose your wallet, you want it back. But if you abandon faith, it's a conscious decision yeah. not to take it back. So Good point. Maybe it's or a renounced. Uh, yeah, yeah, maybe it's a, a suggestion. So yeah. that would be an example of how we can use language to move the conversation forward. Right, right. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, shit, what was I? Oh, uh, you were talking about how people want to talk about their faith. And earlier we were talking about um, this desire to connect to something larger. Mm-hmm. You know, I was thinking about that today. I was sort of thinking about this this conversation. I was watching Argentina play uh, Holland <laughs> yeah. in the World Cup semifinals. And I was thinking about how people are so eager to identify with a team, right, or a na- or a nation, or a religion, or whatever, and you were talking about evolved predis- predispositions that we have as organisms um, to to sort of associate ourselves with something larger. Yeah, and I, I was I was wondering if is there a sense in which one of the problems with the atheistic movement is that people um, hunger so much to be part of that community. And I noticed on your webpage, it was interesting. You, you've uh, right on the the first uh, part of the webpage, it says something like uh, "Join our community." What was the URL again? Yeah, you tell me. <laughs> Bogosian dot com. Bogosian. That's what a, to spell that. Yeah, spell B O G H O S S I A N. Yeah. So I do think that I think that it is helpful in terms of looking at a community. Like right now, I would love to be at TAM, the amazing meeting with James, Randy, and DJ Groti, etc. But I, my family comes first, and we have a family event. So I, I made a conscious decision. But you find that there is a sense of community and camaraderie, and we're a minority. I mean, let's, let's face it. I haven't asked you guys about, I know your religious beliefs, you've articulated them on the air. I haven't asked you about your religious beliefs. I can make a reasonable inference as to what they are. Uh, pagan animist. Really? Yeah. What do you mean? Can yeah. I ask you a question? Here as well. Oh, sure, yeah, sure. Same. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, maybe I'll do an intervention on you guys. <laughs> what, so what do you mean by that? Please. Really? I would love it. <laughs> uh, well, by pagan, I, I and I might be using the term wrong, but I, I mean sort of nature worship. Like uh, a Spinozistic conception of reality? I haven't read Spinoza much, uh, so like I'm not what, sure. You mean like everything is God, transcendence? What do you, what do you mean by that? Yeah, that there's a spirit within things. There's There are spirits... Um, Animism, like yeah, Shintoism. Well, no, more more animism in the sense that I I think there is a magical presence within just about everything. And um, now, see, that's why I mentioned hallucinogens before, um, because I think people who uh, have experiences that are transcendent, whether it's through hallucinogens or meditation or maybe sexuality or fasting or whatever it is, I think they feel that they have connected to something beyond comprehension. 
And because it's beyond comprehension, you can't really get into definitions. Now, I would agree with, with what I understand your perspective to be when, like we were talking earlier, if you name it Thor, then it's bullshit, right? If you name it, and that's one of the reasons I think in Judaism, they don't want to ever speak God's name. But right? the problem to me isn't a vision, isn't uh, an image that one has, isn't the experience of transcendence. The problem comes that, I mean, those things can be, or dream states, the shaman, visionaries, etc. Just wrote a paper on that. that. That to me isn't the problem. The problem is when somebody extends that, those delusions or those perceptions or those otherworldly experiences to objective claims. So they make a claim about the world and they use language to make that claim. That's part of the problem. The other part of the problem is that in a participatory democracy, we want you know, we can vote these things in if we have enough people to share their delusions. So I don't have any problem with somebody who sits on a rooftop or something and takes peyote and has whatever transcendent or DMT, for example. We could talk about that, mm -hmm. which is a fascinating drug. Uh, so those pro those aren't problem. That that's not what my book is about. My book doesn't address people who take peyote and then commune with nature. So you you don't have the same sort of issue with like for example most North American Native uh, traditions that you do with organized Western religion. That is a fair that is a fair question. I I, I think it, it it would depend if those tribes or groups were making claims about the world and then wanting to institutionalize those claims in public discourse, in school systems. Right. That's my problem. So it's really when it becomes political that you're, you're resistant. That's a component of it, but the right. other component is that people... Public education. Are har yeah. yeah, public education. But the other problem is that people really are harboring some pretty serious delusions, mm -hmm. and I want to... There has to be a way... So this is what I was thinking. You asked about the genesis of the idea. There has to be a way to just step back and to think, so, okay, so we have a problem. We have a lot of people running around believing some pretty radical silliness. They don't really have the cognitive tool set to differentiate reality, excuse me, from make-believe land. What can we do to help them? And that's the impetus of the book. Like, we can train people. We can help people to, to literally talk people out of, the, out of faith. And, and, again, to me, it's kind of a triage. You're making some sort of a hierarchical prioritization predicated upon the danger that this poses to society. Medicine, well, medicine men are different because it's alternative medicine, but somebody dropping DMT in their basement with their girlfriend, I don't even know if they're on the lowest rung of the ladder. The ladder of delusion? The, the ladder of perniciousness, dangerous... Uh, insidious to Okay, society. so so now let's say... You certainly don't proselytize, right? Yeah, I've been to Burning Man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's... It's okay, but <laughs> even yeah. in jest when you said that, you know, you, you can advocate drugs because you can make money out of it or what have you. Yeah. But that's different because different people come to different conclusions based upon the drug. Yeah, right. The, the drug is... You can look at the drug as a process that... right. Well, and especially, I think, you know, one of the reasons hallucinogens have been so central to so many spiritual traditions is that they uh, provoke doubt. They, they provoke a stance of saying, holy shit, everything I thought was true, I have to rethink it all now. Everything is open for debate, which... You know, from my perspective, is a major difference between we were talking about North American Native uh, traditions and organized Judeo-Christian religion. 
the, it seems that these institutional religions are all about shutting down uh, questioning, mm-hmm. whereas peyote-based religions, ayahuasca-based religions, which is what DMT comes from, as you know, um, you know, even marijuana and tobacco being used uh, in a sacred sense are about opening up possibility and, and inviting people to question reality. And you know what's even more insidious than that? Mm. Is it the process of shutting down the faculty of critical rationality and questioning is framed in such a way that it masquerades as wonder, uh, right? It masquerades as openness. It masquerades as a virtue. And that, that is a very, very dangerous combination. It's a, it, that makes the delusion more, th- these pathogenomic delusions that people have, that makes them more difficult because then revisability, because people say it makes them more difficult to revise the beliefs, which is exactly what we started the conversation with. Because they're with. sacred. Yeah, they're sacred. And yeah. so how do we help people value those dispositions that will lead them towards more thoughtful and reflective lives? Yeah. You know, I'm wondering too how... Um, when you speak with, say, because I spent you know a better part of ten years as a as a fundamentalist Christian pastor, and I'm still lo- waiting to hear that uh, yeah, story. Well, <laughs> we'll get that. The next world time is waiting. Um, luckily, it didn't take. Uh, it, but but I'm trying to put myself back in that headspace because I've had a lot of interactions with them during that time and since. And I'm wondering how does that? What what's the biggest challenges that come up for you when trying to interact with people who are deeply into these that's it that's an easy question the biggest challenge is that people think faith is a virtue and as long as they think it's something that they ought to hold morally it makes it very difficult to help them understand that revising a belief should be a core value do you approach this so you're sort of the anti-proselytizing element right you're you're proselytizing the absence of faith am i is that fair it depends what one means by well you you go to the bank and somebody's wearing a cross you go in that aisle so you can talk to them and talk them out of it okay so that's proselytizing right it depends what do you mean by proselytizing well you're you're that's an example of it well you know someone who is um making an effort to engage with other people to convince them. No, see, the convince is not correct. No? I make an eff- no, I make an effort to engage. What's, what's the name of your book? A Manual for Creating Atheists. For Creating Atheists. Right. And you, atheists are created when people, certain epistemologies or ways of thinking will lead one. But again, over and over in the book and in my public lectures and the, the material I've written in the public domain, I've talked explicitly about the importance of not only revising the beliefs, which has been a theme here tonight, but if somebody knows something I don't know, I want to know it. So if, I, if I'm speaking to someone and they, they really do have good reasons for something, then uh, they'll do me a favor. So it's, it's not about convincing anyone. But, but again, if somebody has a pretty bizarre belief about the world, the shape of the world, as Stephen Molyneux said, is shaped like a banana, and you help them to see the world is not shaped like a banana, that's not proselytizing, that's educating. So I don't view this as process. I don't view myself or this process as anything right, like that. Right, but but don't most people who are proselytizing see their role as educational? Don't they think they're bringing the truth? I th- I think they do. I also think they're incorrect, and I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. In the hall any, of mirrors. Yeah, here. I don't know. Well, I don't know any prosel. I don't know any proselytize. I don't know any religion that values belief revision. They'd be out of business because people wouldn't believe. 
things in the first place. Plus, the other thing is that these religions latch on to particular conclusions, fact statements about the world. Yeah. I don't deal, in fact, in the book I write explicitly about that, I don't deal with any fact statements about the world. I, I specifically say this is about processes that people use to come to knowledge as opposed to conclusions. That I, was, uh, I was sitting on the Max once. That can't be proselytizing by definition. I was sitting on the bus once and a guy got on and he sat next to me and he had a Bible. And he said, can I talk to you for a minute? And I went, oh, man, you picked the wrong guy. Uh, sure. Right? And he said, um, before we get started, are, are you?" Uh, he was like laying out first principles. It was great. Before I get started talking to you, um, are you open to the fact that I might say something in this conversation that will make you realize you're wasting your life? I don't know how he thought I wasn't already a, a Christian. He was just assuming. Um, and, and that you need to repent of your sins and give your life over to God. Are you willing to accept the fact that I What'd might say, say something? I said, say? I said, um, I thought about it for a second, and I said, because uh, I wanted to really think about if I was actually open to that. And I said, you know what? Yeah, I am. I'm actually open to that. But let me ask you a, a question, too. Are you open exactly. to the fact that I might say something in this conversation that will make you right. realize you're so, wasting your so life? That's you got to throw that book in the trash. Right. That's dialectical. And he said, absolutely not. That's no. dialectical reciprocity. Right. Right? So, and so I said, well, no, i got to be open, but you're not. something of you yeah. that yeah. he himself is not open to. So yeah, absolutely. What I would suggest in that context is that's a great point for an intervention. Mm-hmm. And Matt, that Matt McCormick is a philosopher. He calls that the feasibility test, and I write about that in the book, is... Well, okay, so let's talk about that. So you yeah. wouldn't, you'd, it's kind of like a meta level talking. You'd be talking about why you are or aren't open. And the problem with that is, again, when you ask me the question of what are commonalities, is that he probably almost invariably thinks that faith is a virtue. Right. Do you have kids? You, you, I dose. How did you handle Santa Claus? The more Claus? drinks that I have, uh, the, the more, more kids Spanish have? that are going to come up. Oh, yeah? Uh, <laughs> Podemos seguir en español, si oh, quieres. Si, si quieres. Muy bien. Hablas <laughs> español. Sí, oh. he vivido 22 años en Barcelona. Really? Joder, oh, tío. Ay, caramba. Ay, caramba. <laughs> ¿Dónde <laughs> Barcelona? Where? I yeah. speak American. In Barcelona, you speak American. All right, anyway, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. No, how do you handle uh, Santa Claus with the kids and, and stuff like that? Uh, basically, when my children ask me a question, I'm always blunt and forthright and honest. I don't mediate the my relationship with that my wife has with them. So my wife told them about the tooth fairy and the Easter bunny and all that stuff. But whenever they ask me, I would just tell them the truth. <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> Your mom's full of shit, kids. Sorry, honey. That's it's my the damn truth. Money. <laughs> <laughs> that must be awkward. No, it's not awkward at all. It's, it's actually, it's actually very lovely because yeah. she can have the relationship that she wants, and then I can have the relationship. But aren't that I you want. fucking up the relationship by, you know, not? Towing the party line in terms of no, delusions? there is no party line in that sense. So she tells them there's a tooth fairy. You say, no, Mom, put that money under your pillow. They probably don't no, come no, to see, you, you and ask No, no, I didn't say fairy. that. Yeah. I said when they ask me a question, uh-huh. I will be honest and forthright and blunt. So they haven't come to you to confirm the... Well, they know, well now they're 8 and 12. Oh, uh, all right. They Any know chance they're going to listen to this podcast? <laughs> Zero. Maybe. Even, <laughs> even less my in the wife. Future. <laughs> you never know. They're archived forever, man. Yeah, you know? no, right. and zero, no chance whatsoever. I just don't want to have it blown If they do way, archive you know it I mean? in 10 years, hey, kids, I love you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, no, we were t- talking about this whole question of proselytizing, whatever, you know, bringing the truth to people and disabusing them of their delusions and so on. Are there situations in which... You would not do that because you would feel that it would be cruel? 
I actually wrote about that in yeah. my book, My Mom's Deathbed. Mom, yeah. Yeah. When when my mom my mom died a pretty ghastly death of cancer, and uh, I never really knew what cancer was. Like I knew obviously the word, but I never really knew what cancer was. And so I saw a really vibrant, funny, irreverent, dynamic woman just get boom, just get cut down, crazy, crazy. You know, if, just parenthetically, I think if I were to do my whole life over again, like if wave the magic wand, born again, like what do you want to? I would be a cancer researcher. Hmm. That's what I would do. That's really? what I do. Yeah, that's what I do. But, but anyway, because yeah. of this experience with your mom. You're doing a Thanks. Yeah, he said I'm doing a different kind of cancer research. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and well, and so uh, you just, if I can take a step even further back from that, I think that the key is that you have to leave the world a better place because you are in it. You have to make some contribution. The fact that you were here has to make it better. You know, I mean, I was thinking the other day. So, okay, the name of your podcast is what? Tangentially right, speaking. Well, here's a tangential. <laughs> Good. Go for so it. So I was thinking, you know, wow, at the height of the insurgency, 4,000, the Iraqi insurgency, 4,000 freaking cavemen, misogynistic Stone Age primitives held back the most sophisticated, advanced military machine the world has ever seen. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly easy to damage and to destroy and to make a contribution, a substantive contribution. You really have to go above and beyond. What, what was that? What, what were you talking about? 4,000 cavemen? The 4,000 insurgents. Where? 4,000 in, in Iraq for the Iraqi insurgency. 4,000 of these. Sorry, I've been drinking. Probably, I don't know if it makes a good or bad podcast. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, much but, better. Better, but, better. But, uh, Con yeah, salsa. So, so, so 4,000 of these guys held back our military machine. But the, the basic idea is that, it, you know, what I, I listened to something on NPR a while ago. I was a school teacher in Multnomah County here. She took, I can't remember if it was heroin or meth or one of those. I, I, I know that's horrible that I don't. But, and. She went crazy, and she basically started robbing houses. And she was responsible for something unbelievable, it's like something so radically disproportionate. And I'll just say one one more extension of this: that the judge said you were the reason people lock your doors. I mean, she was literally responsible for like fifty percent of the break-ins in Multnomah County. Wow! A buddy of mine, Mike Richards from New Mexico, who was the the uh, Doctor Richards, he was the. Uh, manager of all the medical services in New Mexico, he told me something that just totally blew my mind. I mean, like, it was such a mind blow that I called bullshit. Like, that could not possibly be true. But it is, and we can, this is really interesting. So it's that 14 people, like, really let this thought percolate and then detonate in your brain. 14 people were responsible for the total health care expenditure of almost 40% of the budget. In a county? In, well, okay. Well, first of all, in, yeah, in, in, um, well, I lived in Albuquerque f- mm-hmm. for years, but uh. that is almost everywhere you go, there's a very small number of people who continue to go to the emergency room. Right. So basically, they found that it's in Central City Concern and other places like that, they found that it's less expensive to just house them and give them their own doctor. And I know that must seem, I know that for a fact, people are going to listen to that and that can't possibly be true. Oh, no. Well, I good. Uh, you, you shouldn't think it's true. Yeah. You should look it up yourself, right? right. So, so they found sheep, but the, the larger 
force through the trees that I was going to get to is that it's so easy to destroy things. It's so easy to break things. And we have to make sure, everybody has to make sure that they make a substantive contribution because a lot of people aren't making substantive contributions. They're hurting people. They're leeching off the system. Faith really is this horrific mimetic virus that goes out and it hurts people and it damages communities and it masquerades in such a way is that the people are held hostage who are subject to this, right? Makes a virtue out of not thinking. Yeah, it makes a virtue out of not thinking, and it really makes a virtue out of, I mean, look what these people have done to the gay community. I mean, that is a tr- it's horrific. But over yeah, and, over and they do it to themselves, too. It, it is a cancer. I mean, what you said earlier, it, it, it is, when you look at it in those terms, it is a cancer. It's all about growth. It's about pulling resources from a healthy body and, and feeding into a When I was a, a Christian. Pathology. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry, no, Chris. go ahead. Uh, when you uh, were potentially speaking with Andrew Gervich, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the show. <laughs> the coup. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, been yeah, a coup. Yeah, yeah, Jesus, this is my this is my first and last uh, appearance as a co-host. The third vodka. Like, <laughs> been, yeah, been nice. Been nice being on the show. <laughs> hey, oh, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway, was I speaking? Yeah, yeah. when you were a Christian. <laughs> um, I noticed a couple of things that uh, there, there's a real emphasis on ideological purity, on making sure everybody in the room agrees and says the same thing back to each other constantly. And I think this has, to, I really think looking back on it, this has to do with two things. There's such an actual cognitive dissonance in forcing yourself as a rational person to believe these things that it's a full time job to work on your own. Your mind is constantly trying to break out of that cage, and you have to keep it in there. Right, and one of the ways to keep it in there is through total compliance and ideological purity, and having nothing but what it is that refine. You know, this uh, uh, um, confirmation bias, right? Nothing repeated back to you other than that which reinforces the thing that's going to keep the doubts at bay. Doubt pig- is a can weakness. I pig- can I piggyback off of that? Yeah, please. Okay, so I just want to warn listeners that this will break your mind, and even listening to what I'm about to say, you'll lose two IQ points. So just uh, <laughs> remain seated. So, <laughs> don't, don't operate any heavy equipment. <laughs> so, the, the, there's a famous, there's a now famous, why doesn't God hail amputees? Why doesn't God hail people? So, a lot of people believe in faith healing, a shocking number of Americans, according mm-hmm. to the last Gallup poll. On Benny Hinn and his crew. Why doesn't God heal people with Down syndrome? Why doesn't God heal people suffering from mental retardation? So the problem of theodicy. Yeah, yeah problem of evil, yeah. So, um, there's a a Christian apologist named J.P. Moreland who wrote something that was just so uh, in Greek called aporia. It was just, it was even beyond that. So here's what he said. He said, look, let's say that you went into a faith healing service and you've known someone your whole life, 20 years, uh, and maybe you can even, I'm, I'm embellishing what he said, but he even got in a boating accident, lost their legs. So there's no, in other words, there's no possible way they could be faking. They're your friend. If God healed amputees, you wouldn't need faith. It's a nice circular argument. Yeah, but, so that's the fascinating thing. It's like, why would somebody think that you would need faith to begin with? Like, why would somebody, why would that concept even pop into somebody's... Right. Now, okay, that leads me to something I wanted to, to talk about, which is the notion of being God-fearing as a good thing. Like, is that, 
a universal thing uh, within okay. religions? Or so is that that's about. You know who I'm going to hand this to? Oh, I'm going to hand this to. <laughs> oh, this is okay. Hand it over. But oh, hang on. Who, who are we handing it to? This this is uh, this an, is another Dr. professor and author. This is Doctor Steve Goldman. Is he writes under Stephen Brutus? He will answer that question. All right. This is a, a two for one special here. Uh, can Hi. you hear me? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I hear you fine. So. Uh, you look a little bit like Walter White. Has anyone ever told you that? No. Uh, All right. Thanks. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Can you hook me up after the show? <laughs> uh, the fear of God is an interesting concept, um, and um, I um, the, it was uh, something that interested me uh, to dig into uh, in my um, work in in Israel in in Jerusalem as a scholar a little bit, and uh, I. Um, I, I think uh, the, it is unique to to the Abrahamic religions. The idea that f- the fear of this thing might um, do you some good. So the question is, why would anyone have thought in the, that in the yeah, first place? Yeah, it's like a proper relationship with God right. is to be fearful, which is mm-hmm. yeah. But I think uh, you know, and when you were speaking earlier, I thought you know much of what you were saying I agree with. But I think we have to look at religion historically, and. Um, you know, there's a transition, let's say, from the uh, animistic worship of very ancient times, Paleolithic times, let's say, and uh, large um, institutionalized religions that have, uh, let's say, a temple where a mighty god is worshipped and perhaps sacrifices are made to this being. And um, But perhaps a transitional state is, is that you... Um, you have a mighty king of some kind, someone like Gilgamesh or Aga or mm-hmm. Begamarshe or people that from Babylon and and before who um, lord over the earth somewhat like gods do. And you could imagine perhaps that the fear of such a figure like that uh, perhaps um, translates for the average person uh, fear of a, of a sky father. But, I, uh, you know, when I was trying to ask questions about this with... Uh, Judaic scholars, you know, people who have looked at this question uh, for centuries, and I think one of the answers that I talk about in my book, I think that is interesting, is uh, you know you're going to see the king, so you're you're you take a shower, you clean up, you you know you put on uh, uh, your best outfit, you're you're presenting yourself to this thing that is in your value system the highest step that you can take, and and in that sense. In, in sort of preparing for that meeting with much uh, of this awestruck, you know, fearsome uh, ritual that precedes it, you're, you're as it were, uh, announcing your values. And so when they say that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, I think the idea is that, you know, if this thing that you care about is right in front of you, then you will bring that consciousness to everyday life. And in that sense, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Is it true that this relationship with God as a fearful, dominant being and a singular being arises together with the nuclear family, which is tied to agriculture, settled, uh, living, moving from the hunter-gatherer nomadic existence Mm -hmm. where uh, paternity wasn't... uh, uh, I, you know, so I think important. we think alike. I've, you know, I've never met you before, but I, it seems to me that I'm trying to think historically about these questions, and I think institutionalized religion and agriculture and um, 
and uh, a military that is uh, uh, a standing army that is invading, let's say, other territories and taking slaves and bringing them back to work the mines, which are important for metallurgical advances. Right. We also have all these other technical advances that are taking place at the same time. So they all go together exactly as you're pointing out. But um, so now, you know, we today as thoughtful people, what do we do with this historical consciousness? I mean, to me, it uh, points out uh, that lesson that you were talking about before about doubt. What's funny is that, you know, these institutionalized religions in their birth, at their birth pangs, you know, the beginning of Judaism, the beginning of Christianity and of Islam, they are doubting eye-opening, new horizon kinds of mm. ideas. Mm -hmm. Right. But they, then yeah. they harden Radical. over time into right. these ridiculous, you know, doctrines that can't be questioned. And, and the status of someone who questions them is, is, uh, becomes even a, a danger. Right. You know? So you, 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 to, to speak up. You know, it's an Orwellian nightmare occurs. No, another way of looking at this particular issue. No, keep keep the mic. You're far more interesting than Peter. Oh, <laughs> man. Remember, I'm coming Take to dinner. Back. I'm coming to dinner still, right? Peter is the only reason I'm... It's the second coup. Man. We've both been supplanted. First the um, Muslim thing and now this. I, I was thinking about Gnosticism. <laughs> yes. uh, I've been, I listened to my friend Duncan's uh, podcast. He was talking to... Uh, uh, what's his name? Wrote Fingerprints of the Gods. Graham Hancock. Graham Hancock. And he was talking about Gnosticism and um, the idea in the Gnostic tradition, which I, you know I'm far from an expert, so correct me if I'm wrong. But the, what I understood from their conversation is that the Gnostics believe that the the entity that Christians call God is actually Satan. That there was a mix-up there. And that's that's why he's so jealous and capricious and nasty and aggressive because that's fucking Satan, and real God has gotten lost in the shuffle somewhere. But that somehow we end up uh, worshiping the the false god. The the exactly that step in Manichaeanism, I think, takes place uh, amidst uh, some of these changes that we're talking about. You know, if you if you have a stable temple worship. And uh, so God has a residence on earth. Right. Then we associate God with that holy place, as in the, the, the wall in Jeru Jerusalem or uh, the, uh, the Holy of Holies in many different religious traditions. But uh, suppose that your shrine is destroyed mm -hmm. and your God now is a sky God that has no residence on earth. Yeah. Then uh, people who associate <coughs> something holy with a physical object on earth become associated with paganism and a step backwards from this sky god that we've ascended to. So in a way, your, your faith, as it were, becomes more messianic and more detached from reality and less uh, open to criticism when the uh, domestic tragedies that you're suffering, military tragedies, you know, reverses on the battlefield and in perhaps the hearts and minds of the population. Yeah, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, said it was better to say that God does not exist than to say he exists as you or I exist. And I wanted to maybe piggyback on something you said in the, uh, earlier. Um, uh, I think in the Abrahamic traditions, you're correct, fear of God leads to this sort of like appropriate level of respect and awe. Um, but there are other traditions where the people are taught to fear God, and these are traditions that have deities that um, are not benevolent at all. So I'm mm -hmm. thinking of the Greeks, 
Um, Zeus would just as soon rape you and toss you off a cliff as he or would do Nemesis anything. Or Nemesis or Thonos. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, um, or Marduk, right? So the Babylonian tradition out of which Gilgamesh and then out of which the Bible tradition arises um, has a, a primary deity that, that makes humans to be a slave race to work the earth, <laughs> the carcass of his dying mother Tiamat, to work these two trees in a garden to, to basically serve them. So people are a slave race and maybe, for the deities. Uh, when, and, we, when life uh, is... Uh, is is deprived of all its meaning you mm -hmm. become a slave working in the mines absolutely it's, it's at that point that you need a kind of let's say spiritual rescue because your your life has just been voided of meaning but perhaps you can get it back even though you're a slave in the mines with the faith in a wonderful sky father who will rescue you this at the Marx's end of time. view of it yeah for sure but the secondary component has to do with surveillance because how are you going to if you create civilizations with large numbers of people living together and you need them to to work agriculture you need them to do metal work you need them to build that civilization for little to no pay um, you have to surveil them you're holding them against their will and and uh, and holding back their impulses right uh, to to freedom and so how are you going to keep them in line? And so um, this notion of a deity as a surveillance, the sky god is always watching you. He's watching mm -hmm. you if you're jerking off. He's watching you if you're not working. He's watching you if you if you stole something, right? He's watching you and keeping tab. And so you're, it's supposed to in, uh, incentivize you to listen to the authority structure. This is We talked about this in our podcast. Law, as opposed to taboo, is a system of control. This is the all-seeing eye on the back of the dollar bill. And it's no, and I'd love to get Peter's view on this, but it's yeah. no accident that um, as we've seen a decrease in the country in belief in God, there's been this increase in things like the NSA, right? Because once people stop believing in an all-seeing sky father that is surveilling them on a regular basis, now you have to actually start surveilling them on a regular basis, right? Because yeah. you still need a oversight mechanism. And when you have a metaphysical oversight mechanism, that's great. But when people stop believing in that or in that's not, in that enough, you have to replace it with something. C Critias, yeah, the uh, yeah. Greek rationalist and um, one of the tyrants, the 30 tyrants who um, uh, gave Athens so much trouble in Socrates' uh, sometime companion, Critias, mm. his explanation for religion is exactly what mm. you just said uh, along those lines, that the... The, and that this scary presence, you know, inserted in the sky in this mysterious place that we all look up to with uh, questions and amazement, you know, that would be the right place to, to place this entity who is watching over us and yeah. who perhaps will scare us into the conduct that the, our leaders are looking for. Drones. But Peter uh, will elaborate on but, you know, also, I, I, I don't know that, Peter, I don't know that you ever answered the, the question I asked you about cases i mean you were talking about your mother uh and and the situation where you never finished that and, and you were talking about the minds and how if life becomes bereft of meaning that's when you need a spiritual rescue in a way it reminded me of marx's line about uh religion being the opiate of the masses you know sometimes you could really need some opium you know if you're like in extreme pain you, the last thing you want to do is deny someone their opium right Yeah, he saw the power and, and the deadening effects, but sometimes deadening of, of pain is exactly what you need. So, I mean, if you don't want to talk more about your mother, but I, I think no, you sort of got halfway into that. And so then we, we so the, the example that I gave in the book was that my, my mom asked my dad to bring her a little uh, figure of the baby Jesus every day in which he did... And I didn't perform an intervention on my mom in her last days. That, that frankly, is grotesque. Right. I, and I, I realized that, as Steve has said to me, that 
goes against the some of the ideas in the book. I think a lot of it boils down to compassion, and a lot of it boils down to in my mom's final hours. The there really wasn't a question of delusion. There wasn't. A, there was just a question of here's a a good decent woman who's close to death and if she wants to harbor this belief that she'll see myself and my dad and she loved the dogs uh, mm. when she died that's okay you know that's okay. well that, that gets us back to the placebo effect right if it's functional on I can't help feeling there's some level on which that's beyond the question of whether something's true or not what do you mean by that um you know, you know, there are truths that are expressed in fiction that are beyond any truth I've ever read in nonfiction. There, there is... They, they, they point to something in your life that has meaning for you. Right. Because words are so um, inadequate yeah. to, to talk about really big issues. And so there's a way of telling a particular story and developing particular characters. They interact in a way that leave you with some knowledge that you could never articulate, but it's been transmitted and it's a magical, amazing process. And so that, you know, it's not a true story. Some guy made this shit up, right? But he told it in a way that conveyed to me something that's real, which is similar to what we were talking about earlier with placebo. Okay. So that, so what you've just captured there and not to, to, it's a very lovely thing. Not not to oh, you're going to shit on my little story. <laughs> well, are not you? to weird out <laughs> on a little bit, but so I mean, I, I love I love science. Fi- I love science fiction. Mm-hmm. I do, and I love I like Star Trek. We made that reference earlier, and but I recognize that that's fiction. I don't think that people fly around in warp capable starships, right? So, I, and I think that that is, uh, if maybe litmus test is too strong, but that's one way to differentiate either the harm or whether or not someone needs an appropriate intervention. It's like, we recognize things are fiction, but there are many people who don't recognize that these things are fiction. And it's a way, as Kant says, it's a way, it's a type of injustice one do, does towards oneself. Yeah. But unfortunately, there's no way to contain that injustice in these systems of participatory democracy. And these are s- types of injustice that people inflict upon other people. And, and it's not that they're bad people, you know, like Plato says, they, they, don't, they, they, they don't knowingly do something that they think is bad. They think it's right. Yeah. They think they're good people for doing this. Have you and Richard talked much about uh, memes? Because I know now people use the phrase memes to mean yeah, anything they stick on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't mean what it used to mean. But, yeah. but this idea that, like, you know, when you have a genetic um, error, if it, if it codes in a way that is beneficial to the organism, the organism, this is the theory, right, of evolution, will keep it and keep repeating that error because it's an error that's beneficial to the organism. If it's not, it's, it won't continue for continuous generations repeat that error necessarily. Um, but the thing with memes is that that's not the case. You can have a, an incredibly destructive meme that for one reason or another takes such hold over a group of people yeah, or a group and, of individuals so, that it is for... so And it is a kind of right. coding error and a scripting sickness that if let to grow is like a computer virus can actually bring the whole system right. that, down. That's why I don't like faith as cancer but faith as mimetic transmission as a virus. And you can look at that as vectors, etc. Oh, and there's my best friend, my best female friend. Hi. There's the humiliatrix. 
So I have like two two of the three of my best friends here. How is now. a humiliatrix different from a dominatrix? Well, is that a the, subclass? The question is like uh, oh boy, thirty this, seconds this, from being answered. This right? podcast is finally I mean, got like, interesting. Let's just keep rolling. <laughs> <laughs> keep, keep taping. Keep taping. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get like you know six months worth of podcasts out <laughs> yeah, of this. Now, yeah. now no one cares what I'm saying. It doesn't make <laughs> any difference anymore. Yeah. Uh, no, well, you describing me, you said. For one reason or another, takes hold, and I, that to me, like that's the crux of the meaning right there. For one, I don't think it for one reason or another. I think there are reasons it takes hold because it's advantageous to a different level of organism. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right, and I think that that conceptualization is important, particularly when you look at the difference between the vibrancy of Islam and what it requires of you in Christianity. And you know, is there something intrinsic to the belief system itself that makes it more likely to propagate, you know, that makes mm. it more likely to gain a, a cognitive foothold right. by which it can propagate itself? It's serving some function. Who is it serving? What is it serving? What's being... Yeah, and what's really interesting to, to me on a macro level, again, if you look at this as viral, are the, uh, when the contagions battle it out. Right. You know, when Islam and Christianity, like, yeah. how, how does that manifest? What is that, how like does that go down? Hills. It's like two, two beehives going against each other. The individuals don't really matter. It's yeah. two systems. To a certain extent, I think that metaphor breaks down because the, those are still tangible and understandable like you can look at numbers and size and you can look at these empirical variables by which you can make reasonable inferences hot rod rock and roll <laughs> wow that was loud last time i did a podcast there were a, a bunch Christian of guys guy. with harleys and I, I like gave them shit for having small penises i it's obviously a Christian guy trying to interrupt yeah, the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Christian. <laughs> Christian hot rod. Uh, what are we talking about? Oh, oh, the this idea of like the when super these, organisms. Yeah, when these meta when these metaviruses like well, I mean when these mega when these macroviruses, excuse me, what does that look like? And what I mean, it manifests itself in a number of different arenas. And that's why before when, I mean, I think that you get, need to be very careful, and I've gone to great lengths in my podcast and my public lectures, to really parse out Islam. Islam is not this hegemonic, monolithic thing, you know. And again, I'm not talking the Shia-Sunni divide, but I'm really talking about some ways to conceptualize this. But at the macro level, when you look at these as viruses competing for hosts and to be the main strain of the main virus, it becomes really very interesting. Can I my friend. Sure, sure. I have, we have a very special guest here tonight. I'm going to put you on. <laughs> I'm starting to feel like David Letterman. This, <laughs> yeah. is, this is great. Yeah, really. yeah sure. sure. I, I want to. If you want to be on, are, do, yeah. A very, another very. This is great. This two, is so two of my three best friends have come tonight. This is amazing. This is why it's so much fun to do a podcast in public. <laughs> you you never early, know who's yeah. going to show up. This is great. So is, uh, please introduce your beautiful this friend is here. Sierra Lynch, the humiliatrix. Humiliatrix, come on up, come on up, come on up. Yeah, this this is like the old you know Tonight Show. You just yeah, take right. a You're take a seat on the on the sofa. Hi. Hi. So first question. Uh, my name's Chris, by the way. This is Tony. Nice uh, to Tony? meet you. Tony. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really just call me Tony? <laughs> 
It's not my name at all. <laughs> but we call him Tony. Yeah, okay. yeah. Don't yeah. ask. It's not your real name one. either, is it? Andy. It's funny. I'm already Andy. humiliated. Andy. And you just sat down. <laughs> I, I did it for you. Fuck, you're good. You're good. Wow. How much do I owe you? She bounced it off me too. That's God amazing. Damn. Andy, Tony, whatever. Four letters ends in Y. Um, so what's the difference between a, a dominatrix and a humiliatrix? Is that a sub subset of Yeah, yeah, you could say it's a subset. Um it's it's a lot like it. It's it's but it's focused on humiliating rather than like physical pain or whipping or that sort of thing. Could so I, I do everything online. Like I don't meet anyone. I don't oh, meet people. really? Yeah. So it's all mental. It's all psychological. Oh god. And yeah. you just make them feel bad about themselves. Pretty much, yeah. And people find that hot. Some people do, yeah. Girl, because growing up, my mom did that. Yeah, but I didn't for find free. It hot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could have been beaten off all the time instead yeah. of just crying in my room. <laughs> Sometimes they go hand in hand. Yeah, yeah like yeah. Can you use tears as lube once in a while. Tears, tears as lube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I've been tears there. are the sweetest lube. Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you ever see that there's a Monty Python episode back when they did the TV series uh-huh. where like the guy, some guy walks, he's in a place and he walks down the hallway and he goes in one of the rooms and they hit him on the head with a hammer and he says, Oh, what's that? And he said, well, this is physical abuse. He said, no, I'm for humiliation. Oh, sorry. That's just down the, <laughs> that's on the left. Hand. <laughs> you know, they, they, yeah. whatever. Uh, so how is, you have a website? I do have a website. CRLynch.com. C-E-A-R-A-L-Y-N-C-H. And how does this work? People c e c e c e a r a c r a. Wow, yeah, that's C-R-A. okay. So I come on the website, right? Uh-huh. And so what happens? So take, take me through this. So, so I make videos. Mm-hmm. They're point of view videos where essentially I'm just talking to the camera. I usually just do solo girl stuff. Um, so my videos make you feel like I'm talking directly to you. And it's a lot of humiliating. It's a lot of teasing. Um, there's a lot of various niche fetishes. Like, so you're like an angry am- goddess. Yeah, yeah. That's you're yeah. punishing. So what are the categories? Like you're fat, you're old, you're stupid. <laughs> well, I think the standard. Goes, well, I mean, that all works under like you know humiliation. But like some guys like feet. Okay. Um, some guys like uh, you know being sat on. Some guys like cuckolding. Some guys like. Me to make fun of their small penis. Dicks, yeah, that's yeah. a big one. Yeah, yeah. So, or a small one. As yeah, it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some guys like you know certain clothes, like pantyhose or high heels. So, and how do you get into this line of work? Oh, that's a great story. So, um, a while ago, I was approached online by a guy. He found me on like this really normal social networking site, like not kinky at all. But uh, he likes me. He thought I was really pretty, and he started talking to me. And I didn't understand this at the time but now it makes a whole lot of sense the meaner i was to him the more he wanted to talk to me right and i was really mean to him because he was a total pervert and he always talked about like wanting to be peed on and he liked pantyhose and that sort of thing i guess i didn't like hate him enough to block him but i hate <laughs> enough to be mean to him and so one day he told me that because he always wanted to meet me and i was like no i'm not gonna meet you so one day he said you know your piss should be bottled and sold so i was like fine buy it I didn't believe he would. And, uh, and he did like a 12 ounce bottle in my urine for $250. And so from there I was like, holy shit, like there has to be more guys like this out there. <laughs> and you know, this guy found me like, what happens if I go looking for these guys? And, uh, and so I started out like selling my used underwear and socks and pretty much like 
anything I can harvest off my body. Really? To like tampons and toenails and use Kleenex. Wow. Talk yeah. about recycling. Yeah, exactly. Here in Portland, the heart of recycling. That's fantastic. Yeah. Have you seen that family guy where Quagmire, they go to the, uh, <laughs> the police auction and they go, now we have this pair of underwear that was used by a prostitute. And he goes, 50 bucks. And they go, the prostitute... Uh, you know, urinated in these underwear, and he goes uh, twenty five bucks, and they go, and she also had chlamydia, and he goes fifty bucks. <laughs> it goes up. It goes yeah. back up again. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's all I have to say to that. Yeah, <laughs> well, that's that's great. The tone. Yeah. How long? How long you been doing this? Um, in one form or another for about 10 years now. What's the best seller? The pee years. or toenails yeah. or tampons? Hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute. 10 years? Yeah. You, you, you can't be more than 24, 25 years yeah, old. 27. So you've been doing this since you were a teenager. Yeah, wow. yeah. Have. It, it, have you heard about this kind of stuff in Japan? You know, it's funny. I was living in Japan when uh, the story I just told you happened. Go. There um, it is. But no, not there it is. Like, I was totally sheltered while I was in Japan. Like, yeah, but this kind of stuff is big in Japan. Like, selling supposedly. I didn't, panties, I didn't personally all these young girls it. selling panties. I didn't, I didn't personally see it. I was, yeah. I was stayed in a very rural area. I was very well protected. So, what like, were you doing I really in Japan? Um, a little town called Iyoshi on the Shikoku well, Island. Why were you there? I was an exchange student. Oh. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That's cool. You speak Japanese? Uh, I used bit? to. Uh, Chototake desu. Yeah, nice. Uh, cool. Yeah. And where are you from originally? Uh, Vancouver, I, I, Washington. Yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. Southern Northwest. Oh. The, uh, Sierra's not your real name, no. right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I don't want to expose you or anything. Oh, that's all right. Yeah. How does the, what's the line to the atheist community? Do atheists like being humiliated? Or, uh, I mean, beyond being atheists? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I've never, uh, I've never taken a poll as far as religious background, but there, I will say there are a lot of guys who get off on me seducing them out of their religion. Um, so, uh, so you're happy with this? Do you ever feel? Yeah, I love it. I, I think I have the perfect job. I, I completely work for myself. I don't work for anyone. Right. Um, it's very lucrative. Um, I make money in like the stupidest ways. Like, a guy will email me and be like. I'll pay you fifty dollars for a picture of your toilet, like just really simple, stupid stuff like that. Are you ever tempted to like send someone else's urine or <laughs> someone else's well, then I don't underwear? I have to handle someone else's waste. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like I'd maybe handle like, my own. I mean, <laughs> do, people, do you drink a lot of beer to produce a lot of urine? I, uh, mean, no, I mean, I don't sell a lot of urine. Like, no, okay, yeah, that's not that's not a big incidents. line. Yeah, right. it's that's not a big thing. Most of my money comes from um, videos and cam shows and they pay you on uh, PayPal. Lines. Um, no, PayPal doesn't allow like adult transactions. I was going to say, how someone you know get urine or toenail clippings on? Uh, well, there's auction sites similar to yeah. eBay, like exactly like eBay, but it's um, specifically designed for selling your panties or selling your socks or that sort of you thing. St- all that stuff still? Are you still selling that stuff? What's the? Yeah, yeah. I'm actually I'm selling a pair of my socks right now. What's the best seller of the? Of the oh, I've got a great story. I, this is a one-time thing. I don't know if I could ever do it again. But I bought a um, Hooters outfit. You know, like the tank top, the shorts, the pantyhose, and the socks. And I don't know. There was just this certain time when those were really popular, I guess, among perverts. And I managed to sell the entire outfit, auctioned it off for uh, four grand. What? Yeah, isn't that wild? <sighs> yeah. That's pretty, I gotta get me a Hooters outfit. <laughs> well, I was gonna say, I took a picture of myself in a Hooters outfit, put it on Facebook, people offered me four grand to take it down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, take it, man. I mean, <laughs> anyway, you get works. the prize. Um, do, have you found your limit? Have people asked you to do things that you said no? Um, well, sure. Like, I don't want to meet anyone. So that's yeah, kind of an obvious limit. Yeah. Um, I don't get completely naked. 
another thing. Like, I get close to it, you know. I don't want to act like I'm, you know, all high and mighty or anything. But I never get completely naked. And I think that's actually um, a really big part of what I do because a lot of these guys, um, the the whole I'm not worthy kind of aspect of it, you know, fits into the whole psychological play. So I think it's it works to my benefit that I don't get completely naked, ironically enough. Um, and then more recently, I've kind of like set some limits. Like I've had like a lot of guys because, you know, they like being humiliated. They'll ask me to contact like old girlfriends or that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's kind of a violation on them, you know, right. if they, they don't want to be a part of that sort of thing, right. like, especially if they're asking me to send them, like, you know, embarrassing pictures of them. So, you know, I've kind of, it's like, eh, I, I feel like that's... How do you send you to their kid's school play or something? You know what I mean? Yeah, you sit in for a meeting. What do you think involving you know? kids? Yeah, definitely. Get me fired, too. How does this play out in, in your personal life, if I can ask? In my personal life? It's very Feel separate. Feel free to say no. Oh, I mean, uh, yeah. Know. No, it's it's very separate. It's This is my job, you know? And do you, do you have a relationship with someone? Um, not at the moment. I just got out of a relationship, but... Um, and did the work bother that person? No, I've had... Probably three serious relationships since I started, and it's honestly never been an issue. I, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing things, and so yeah, it was very much this was my job, and and luckily, um, you know, the guys I was with were open-minded about it, and they actually thought it was pretty cool. So, yeah. can we? I, ask I lived with a stripper for years. Yeah, for well, close to a year. Um, and I would have much preferred that you were doing what you're yeah, doing. Yeah, that's the thing. A lot of guys are like, oh, you don't meet anyone? You don't take off your clothes? Like, it's a pretty yeah. interesting loophole in the sex industry. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How do you know Peter? Uh, he's my teacher. Uh, Currently at PSU? Um, he was. I, yeah, I graduated okay. a couple years ago. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Huh. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, this is great. Well, thank, thanks for <laughs> dropping it. Can I take yeah, your no picture? Or, of course. Or, or just, yeah, yeah, definitely. I've read your book, by the way. Oh, you yeah? Yeah, I really like it. I oh. read it about a year and a half ago. And uh, yeah, I love it. Could, could you do me a favor? Yeah. Just tell me you hated it. <laughs> I fucking hated it. It's really badly <laughs> written, wasn't it? Piece of shit book. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I'm a, I'm Obviously a, written by a guy with a small dick. <laughs> I'm a bad, bad author. You really are. Yeah, all right, let me get the two of you because you both appeared on the podcast here. Thank you. Great. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm yeah. sure it was kind of different from whatever you're talking about before. <laughs> no, 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 I don't even remember what we were talking about before. Uh, should we wrap it up? Let's wrap it up, I so guess. Yeah, our, yeah, our, yeah. our primary guest left. So. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there th- he is. Thank you. Thank all three of you. for. Co- I've never done a podcast with three guests before. Really? This is a first. Yeah, and a co-host. Really? This is a first. Oh, with cool, cool. I mean, uh, God knows what this will sound like when it goes out, but uh, it was a lot of fun from my perspective. Well, thanks for, thanks for doing it, and thanks for... Having it, and just, we got two of my three best friends. Yeah, right here, so. yeah. Well, we should do like individual podcasts with the two of you uh, at some point. You have an app? Did you? I do. I have an what, app. What the hell is your app that I work What's on it do? constantly, full time, and then hopefully a, a TV show to accompany that. Oh, that's yeah. sweet. So, oh, we can't discuss it. Oh, all right. So, the, but we can discuss the app. So, okay. so part of the app is that it's how it's kind of an adjunct to the book how to talk somebody out of faith and superstition and into reason. So it gives these long dialectical trees or dialogue trees in which if they say this, you say this, here's why. Uh-huh. If they say this, you say this, here's why. Here's exactly what you need to know to meet someone where they are in motivational interviewing. Here's the body of literature that pulls from this. And it's all kind of simplified. So, And it's structured like the jujitsu belt system. So it's white, blue, purple, brown, and black. 
and like your buddy Joe Rogan there. Is there it, it is. There it is. So have you been on his show? No, no. Huh. So interesting. At, at white at white belt, you do. I love jujitsu. Big fan. As you can see from my ears. At white belt, <laughs> this is what you need to know. These are the sort of things that someone will say to you. At blue belt, these are the sorts of things you need to know. This is what someone will say to you. So hopefully, I have a developer. I have a team of six people working on it with me. It's a full time project. Wow. Where do people get the book? Give us the book, you can go, it's a manual for creating atheists. You can go on Amazon and get it. And Sierra uh, did the audio book, the female version of the dialogues in the back of the book. Oh, that's and, cool. Uh, wow. Steve Goldman is uh, also, uh, Stephen Brutus is his name, and he's also in the acknowledgments of the book. He's been very helpful. So my, my friends have been incredibly supportive of me. Great. Grateful. It's gratitude. Gratitude. Thank God. <laughs> Besides the app, yeah. what's next? Hey, what do you say Maybe when people to, sneeze? You had to ru- ruin that authentic moment. <laughs> <laughs> hey, besides the app, what do you got coming next? What's on the What's on the horizon? I just finished a paper, uh, a paper that's uh, t- taking a swipe at cosmological metaphysics, and Steve read that. Hopefully, that'll be going into Scientific American. Hopefully, I wrote that with Victor Stenger and James Lindsay. I have a um, another paper that I'm working on about how to use universities as uh, reason and rationality incubation chambers to promote critical rationality. Uh, and I have, hopefully I have a, a TV show at, at, at some point post-December that will be coming out that I've been w- working on. I have a lot, I, I'm always, I'm working, I'm writing, I'm, I have a lot of stuff. Awesome. Oh, and I have a chapter from a book uh, in John W. Loftus's book, Christianity is Not Great, Why Faith Fails, that's coming out. And I just have, I'm just writing stuff, doing stuff all the time. Not sleeping enough, but. Yeah. Damn. All right. Sounds like well, thank you. This this has been great. Thanks, Andrew. Also known as Tony. Tony, yeah, from your book. Tony, <laughs> the podcast beauty distracted power you. That's what it was. It was. It I, really a beautiful was. woman sits down. I forget everything. I don't and know. And she's an incredibly real and authentic person. Oh, that's great. That's sweet. All right. Enough of this. Thanks for listening, everybody. Catch you next time. What's a big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Soft touch, why don't you let it out to play? Your heart is in a bird cage, singing in your chest. You wanna shut it up or give it a rest? You're gonna die one day. Why do we waste our time? Think about an obligation, running from a confrontation, wondering what we ought to say.
night with me I'm gonna take you up in my arms And if we must go down We'll go singing to the smoke alarms We'll dance into the ground